Now, if you turn on the television and you're watching Game of Thrones or whatever it's called, if you're watching CSI, if you're watching, if you if you go to the movies, look at what is actually being done. Look at the amazing technology, what technology has brought to the lying part of television. Now, tell me what you have actually seen of Sandy Hook. We have not seen blown out windows. We have not seen dead bodies. I hate to say it, and I know you're thinking I'm a dick, but I have not seen anything. I have seen, you know, in fact, what we've heard is the parents haven't even seen the bodies. And then, oh, they were taken away in the middle of the night in a refrigerated van. Are you effing kidding me? This whole thing. Sandy Hook may not even exist for all I know. I don't know. I've never been there. To me, this is no different than the moon landing. I swear to God. Well, of course, this should be after this. This should be second half of the show. But let me, can I say one thing? I'm not going to agree with this, of course. But I will say one thing that kind of bothers me, which is that there has been not one eyewitness account that I've heard of, of anyone seeing this guy shooting anyone or shooting around. Even when they're, I mean, he apparently killed everyone who laid eyes on him. Before he before he killed himself, and I don't even know that it was him that did any of it. I mean, they could bring a dead guy in there. Some a sad, paid assassin could come and shoot up a bunch of people, or or not, and then throw this guy's body in the corner. I mean, has anyone said, yeah, he came in wearing? You know, so first there was a report he was wearing a mask. I don't know why, but okay, he was wearing a mask. So we don't even know who it was actually. If you got a mask on, could be could have been anyone, and then. Has anyone said, yeah, he started firing around, I had to duck, you know, he shot so-and-so, or, I mean, has there been one eyewitness report of him, no, John, seeing him actually no, shooting no, a gun? No, 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 there has been nothing. We've seen journalists trolling online to try and get a hold of people. We have not seen this. We, we started this show off with this dad, and I have shown this to actors, and the actors all say to me, wow, that if that was really an act then that guy is really, really, really good. And you people do respond very strangely in certain types of environments of severe stress. But again, it's I'm all I'm seeing. I don't know where he's standing. I see a brick wall. I see some dudes. It's just, it, this is, please do not forget, you saw nothing. You saw television. You saw nothing. So believe what you will, but please. You did not see anything with your own two eyes, and I have been on the other side of that box too much with some very so-called innocent stuff. Week in, week out, I made trickery. So you did not see anything. And all, all the, only, the discussion is not about the guy they arrested in the woods. You know, the, all these, all these other things. Why is no one asking any questions about that? All it is is about guns and medication, and the internet is bad. And to me, it, it literally is no different. I didn't see it. I just, I just can't tell you from where I'm coming from, from my personal perspective. I don't know. Please, at least well, show me a shot-out building. Please, they show pictures. Uh, with shadows that can can only be very early in the morning or very late at night, not at eleven o'clock. They were surrounding the the kids' home at nine fifteen. 
they, before this even happened. I mean, there's so many discrepancies. So much is wrong. And then, oh, by the way, anyone who says anything on the Internet, shut up, slave. We're going to arrest you. We're going to prosecute you because you're spreading disinformation. I don't know what happened. I don't know why this happened. I don't know if anything happened. But as far as I'm concerned, it's all media magic. So here's another thing that bothers me. That, uh, But I obviously have not drawn this conclusion you have. But these things bother me. The initial report that it was his older brother, which was rebuked by his older brother, who was on Facebook, and I guess not even in, anywhere near there. He's in New York, I, I think. New Jersey. And he was going, hey, this isn't me. I didn't do nothing. New Jersey. Now, New Jersey. He, New Jersey. He was in Jersey. So, yeah. so the question always remains, A, how did they, why did they think it was him? Was he part of a script and, or somebody's fouled up? I mean, it makes no sense to me that you would name somebody without absolutely knowing who it was and then talking about him having a younger brother that they're going to go question, which is what the initial report said. And when you bring this up with journalists or other people, well, that's just the news. They, you know, they do the best they can and all the rest of it. But doing the best you can is not naming somebody specifically May I ask you a as question? if it was them. It doesn't make any sense to me that you do that. Jeb, Why did they think Jeb, it was him? Jeb, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that uh, we actually assassinated and captured Osama bin Laden and then threw <laughs> him in the ocean and didn't take any pictures? Do you actually believe that? Well, I've never believed that. Okay. So, Especially, I mean, everyone's going to be taking pictures. Yeah. So tell me, why should I believe this? I have seen nothing. You know, you know they put sheriff's deputies outside of every single one of the so-called parents' homes. Why? Why? What, I mean, are, are people going to be assaulting them? What's going on with this? What is going on? I'm sorry. I have no belief in any of this. If it's on television, I'm just not going to believe I can't. From where I come from, I cannot believe it. And it, it's just people telling, telling me stuff. And, you know, oh, boy, what did we have? It was she was a teacher, then she wasn't a teacher, and then he was a student, then he wasn't a student, then he has Asperger's, then he has autism, and then, uh, you know, and then she was uh, working. And it's, it's a million things. She was a prepper, then she's, she's a normal a prepper, housewife. And then she's a normal housewife. We don't know if these people were even real. I just don't know. I did not see it. And that, therefore, I, can't, I just can no longer believe it because I see what's possible. And of all the theories, of all the theories, this is the easiest one to believe because you know the technology is there. It's simple. Put a sheriff up there with his hat. It bothers me that sheriff. Excuse me? That sheriff bothers me with that commentary. Of course it bothers We're going to go after anyone who posts on Facebook anything yeah. they say. The gunmaker Remington offers to play, pay nearly $33 million settlement to victims' families of the 2012 Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. According to court documents filed Tuesday, Remington is willing to pay $3.6 million each to nine families who sued the gun manufacturer back in 2014. That lawsuit claimed Remington's marketing of its firearms contributed to the massacre. Lawyers for the victim's family say they will consider their next steps. Now, Dr. Steve Pachanik, totally legit, right? Oh, yeah. High level. I mean, when he, he comes on the show, it's in, like, Italian newspapers, and then they send, like, you know, FBI to his house, and he's called before federal courts. Well, I mean, when he releases stuff, they threaten him with national security arrest. 
Doctor That's Steve, how real he is. Dr. Steve Pachanik, and you got some heat for this. This is kind of changing the subject a little bit. Dr. Steve Pachanik on your show said that no kids died at Sandy Hook, that it was a, a Homeland Security drill that they passed off as a real He event. says that. That's what he said. He said and, and I've been hit really hard with it. I can't prove it one way or the other. I know Anderson Cooper standing up there and turns and his whole nose disappears. I work in TV. I know what a blue screen is, bro. Yeah. And I have one question about Sandy Hook. The one question, the Tower 7 question is, why weren't the medevac helicopters the Pachinik ran the operation to overthrow at least seven countries. I mean that's on record. Yeah, he co-wrote Tom Clancy's books. He's he's the he's the Jack Ryan character. Yeah. We now have uh, Maureen Crowley. Thank you all for allowing me to be here today. My name is Maureen Crowley. I was born in New Britain, the city in which my great grandfather James Christopher Crowley founded the Crowley Brothers Paint Company in 1885. We then moved to Plainville when I was a toddler and moved back to New Britain when I was in the sixth grade. I attended St. Francis of Assisi Junior High, where Sister Miriam Patrice taught me, when you're not sure the right thing to do, the right thing is usually the hard thing to do. It's hard for me to speak here, to be here today to speak. As an aging baby, but where it would have been easier to sit home, where the truth never comes easily. It comes with dues for those who choose to speak it. The truth is often not palatable or pristine, but it is simple. Simple, but far from easy. Security matters indeed. Of course it does. Safety. Based on the events in Newtown, Connecticut, December 14, 2012. Not December 13, 2012, the day which was confirmed by Bing itself that the interview with Principal Don Hawksprung was catched. Not December 13th, the day that the September 2013 FBI report said the shooting occurred. This was before the other report, the Uniform, uniform Crime Reporting of the FBI infamously declared no murders in Newtown in 2012. Not December 13th, the day that the Social Security Death Index proclaimed was the day that Mr. Fictional himself, Adam Lanza, left this world. There's even a report from the Committee, the committee on the Psychiatric dimensions, dimensions of Disaster that not only has the date of this event wrong, they have the day of the week wrong. It was not on December 12th. was not a Tuesday. It was a uh, – December 11th was a Tuesday. In fact, December 11th was the day that the United Way started soliciting funds. The list of pre-knowledge confirmed, issued, and divulged is long. How could, how could this be if it were a real shooting done by a 112-pound young man standing a full six feet tall, wearing a size eight-and-a-half shoe after he neatly made his bed and washed the New Hampshire trip dirt off his mom's car, then shot 26 people? No. I was, as some of you here are now, I believed every word out of Anderson Cooper's mouth that day. But once the persecution of Wolf Gang Halbeg began, I wanted to ask why the Newtown police would send law enforcement into his home in Florida if they did not have something to hide. This is serious. This is a non-event that has turned the culture of the state of Connecticut and the culture of the United States of America upside down. Mental health vulturism, drills in which third graders are forced to look down the barrel of a gun, 
nanny state monitoring of Connecticut homeschooling, and even a president that wants to hoard bullets. I reject the official narrative of Sandy Hook. I reject the lies, and I'm suspicious of the um, upwards of $500 million raised through a plethora of donation websites with zero IURC scrutiny, zero money laundering scrutiny, zero United Way. Maureen. Wrap it up. If you could, please, that would be wonderful. Folks, nine years ago today, the families in Newtown were hit especially hard. No matter how long it's been, every one of those families relives the news they got that day. Twenty precious first graders, six heroic educators, a lone gunman in an unconscionable act of violence. Everything changed that morning for you, and the nation was shocked. For me and for Barack, the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School was one of the saddest days we were in office those eight years. But as we got to know you, and I got to know so many of you personally, I spoke to every one of your families and found I found hope in your strength as you turned pain into purpose to change the laws and the culture around gun violence. At the time, remember, because of your leadership, we forged a, a broad coalition and enacted more than 20 executive orders. We came close to legislation, but we came up short. It was so darn frustrating, and it's still frustrating now for you and me and so many others in Parkland, Florida, in Oxford, Michigan, in countless communities across the country. There's these horrific shootings that make national headlines and embarrass us as a nation. And for many others, every day, particularly in black and brown communities, there's the equivalent of a mass shooting we don't even hear about. As a nation, we owe all these families more than our prayers. We owe them action. From my earliest months as president, I've acted, curbing the proliferation of ghost guns, cracking down on rogue gun dealers, promoting safe firearm storage. You know, in my American Rescue Plan, it's a fancy way of saying historic $470 billion investment, we encourage states and cities to use that money to reduce gun violence, among other things. In my budget, I'm, call for, I'm calling for doubling the funding for gun violence prevention research, including examining gun violence as a public health threat, which it is in my view. There are three common-sense bills to reduce gun violence that the Senate should pass now, right away, long overdue. One requires more extensive background checks for gun sales. One is to keep guns out of the hands of more abusers. My Build Back Better legislation which would make a landmark $5 billion investment in community violence prevention and intervention programs to support trusted leaders who work directly with people who are most likely to commit gun crimes or become gun victims before it's too late. These programs work. Again, I know our politics is frustrating. It can be frustrating. It's particularly frustrating now. But we can't give up hope. We can't stop. I've helped beat the NRA with your help. Twice. Twice. It can be done again. We have to keep up the pressure. May God bless all those innocent lives in Newtown and all across the country. And all of you who have been the victims of gun violence and your families have suffered from it. My heart breaks for you, but we have to act. We can't give up. we got to get it done. This is CNN Breaking News. 
And to update you on what we've been covering, these are some of the first pictures that are coming into us here at CNN of um, what appears to be a school shooting at an elementary school. This coming to us courtesy of our affiliate WTNH. This is in Newtown, Connecticut. It's a, it's a town about midway between Stamford and, and Hartford in southwestern Connecticut. Um, reports came in early this morning of a shooting. Um, and the response was quick and furious. You can see now from the aerial shot some of the officers, one of them with a canine unit on the scene. Uh, we also have reports. Good evening. Breaking news. I'm Ashley Banfield in for Aaron Burnett tonight in Newtown, Connecticut. It is the scene of one of the worst school shootings in the history of the United States. And we can report for you that police have now identified a school shooter as Adam Lanza, a shooter who killed 26 people today at the Sandy Hook Elementary School here in this small Connecticut town. 20 children were killed. 18 of them were pronounced dead right at the scene of the school. Two of them were rushed to the hospital, hoping that they could save them. Those children died at the hospital. Six adults at the school were also shot dead, and they died at the scene Chief as well. investigative correspondent Nancy Brian Rossi Lanza, has spent all day trying to better understand this young man and the troubles that led him to this horrible act. Brian. Chris, he was armed to the teeth with legally purchased guns and went from obscurity to infamy. Until today, Adam Lanza was known mostly in his neighborhood as someone who did not play well with others. The perpetrator of the crime is dead. A little bit different, kind of repressed. Unfortunately, what's in the mind of, of that shooter now, he's taken to the grave with him. Tonight, no one yet seems to be able to answer the question, why 20-year-old Adam Lanza, seen here in a photo provided to ABC News from seven years ago, attacked the Newtown Elementary School. We'll go backwards as far as we have to go in this investigation, and, and, and hopefully we'll stumble on answers. Adam Lanza was a child of an affluent Connecticut town and the child of divorce. His deadly rampage began at the family. Uh, I will also ask the school board to make a part of every day some kind of anti-violence, anti-gun message. Every day, every school, at every level. One thing that I think is clear with young people and with adults as well is that we just have to be repetitive about this. It's not enough to simply have a, a catchy ad on a Monday and then only do it every Monday. We need to do this every day of the week and just really brainwash people into thinking about guns in a vastly different way. Brainwash people. So we'll see if... Uh... Robbie Parker, I assume he's going to come out to the microphones now and make a statement. Uh, looks like the family is there and they're getting ready to make uh, to come to the microphone. So we'll listen. In. Okay. Let me just stop you as an investigator, kind of like they got Al Capone for tax evasion, not for all the murders or money laundering. You're looking at how they don't do any of the standard stuff, the paperwork, the police reports, no helicopter sent, no rescue, kids going in circles, totally staged, men with guns in the woods getting grabbed, no names released. They, they deny it went on, later have to admit it went on, but say we're not answering questions. I mean, clearly it's a drill, just like the Boston bombing. I don't know exactly what's going on, but it just the official story isn't true. And, and again, I've read a lot of criminology. I'm not, you know, I'm not a cop, but I've studied a lot of it. And just from an a lay media investigative journalist perspective, something is rotten here. And then you see it duplicated over and over again. What's your bottom line? What do you think really happened at Sandy Hook? People can see your 16 questions at sandyhookjustice.com. 
and, and we just salute your uh, your will to go up there and have eight police cars block you at the United Way and have them shut you down at the at the school board, uh, at the commission. But 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 bottom line, what do you as a as a almost forty year you know investigator, police officer, you name it, what do you think is happening here? die. Teachers did not die on December 14th, 2012. It just could not have happened. And it's in their words. It's not what Wolfgang thinks or it's just my opinion. It's what they say. I mean, their own words actually show that it could not have happened. Who declares 27 people legally dead within eight minutes? Nobody does that. Who has a 99.9% kill rate shooting children in a school within eight minutes. There isn't an FBI agent, there isn't a Navy SEAL that's that good of a shot within eight minutes and then kill himself. I mean, that's reasonable doubt. I mean, that in itself is reasonable doubt to show that right. Adam Lanzer could not have done that. I mean, he's an autistic child. He's got Asperger's. Alex, nobody has a 99.9% kill rate, not even the New York police. But well, he's a perfect cutout. And for those that don't know, the reason that is, even if you're shooting people point blank in the head, the bullets change direction. They go different directions. And, I mean, a lot of times I've shot a wild hog, a deer, you name it, and the bullet deflects off. Even if you hit them broadside, sometimes it just deflects through. You don't get 99.99 kill rates. It's it's just incredibly hard to I do. I was so proud to have this guy by my side. So with that, Jim, I'll let you say hello. Well, those are very kind words, Don, and I appreciate that. And yes, indeed, this is the third observance of the events at Sandy Hook, which was the second day of a two-day drill conducted by the Federal Emergency Management Agency in order to in order to deceive the American people, convince them that 20 children and six adults had been killed by a lone demented gunman. Does that sound familiar? and that there was a necessity for gun control, which Obama moved for already one, uh, one month and two days after the event on 16 January 2013. He signed 23 gun control executive orders, and he hasn't let up yet. Here in the first so uh, slide, you'll see a feature of the book where Dr. Eelwin, who maintains the Fellowship of the Minds.com website, reported that Amazon had 20 books about Sandy Hook, uh, but only one was banned to wit mine, the only one that offered conclusions that were in disagreement with the government's official account. So what we have here was a blatant act of, uh, of censorship, about, no doubt motivated by an administration that did want not want to be embarrassed well. by by the revelation that this had been a concocted event, and where it turns out that Attorney General Eric Holder had met with the governor of Connecticut on the 27th of November, just two weeks and a couple of days before the events at Sandy Hook, no doubt to let him know that they were going to take an abandoned school, conduct a drill, present it as a real event in order to promote a gun control agenda. We have a, a disinformation campaign going. Here's a woman who claims to have lost a son at Sandy Hook. We can't accept gun violence as the new norm. This was published on the, the Huffington Post. 
Uh, remarkably, I was able to put up a comment. Let me read it. It's the next slide, Don. James Henry Fetzer works at McKnight Professor Emeritus, UMD. The article is rubbish. 13 contributors, including six PhD college professors, proved that the school was closed by 2008 and nobody died at Sandy Hook, 2015. It was so threatening to the Obama administration that it was banned. It was a FEMA drill to promote gun control. We even have the FEMA manual for a two-day drill. Don't take my word for it. Read the book, which I made available as a PDF in response to the ban. It's all over the Internet. Don't let HuffPost become an accessory after the fact to a massive fraud upon the American people. Terrorist attacks are designed to instill fear into a population to make it more amenable to political manipulation. This was a classic example. Obama has been making fake terrorist attacks upon the American people. I would be glad to send you an article that lays out the facts. We even have 50 photos of the Lonzo House being furnished to serve as a prop and another 50 of refurbishing the school to serve as a stage. See the book, write me. To my astonishment, Don, I checked recently and that, uh, that comment was still up at Huffington Post. A lot of fights. Okay. Um, so, Sandy, look, when I talk about um, the modeling, the event, it's actually an ongoing event. And here's where I want to bring in the iPods drills. You know, we didn't have the language a year ago when it happened in terms of the research that people were doing to see that this was a homeland security drill, a very high, high, high level drill. And I'm just saying, let me just be uh, as expansive as possible. In all probability, that's what it was. It was what they call an integrated capstone event, a very high level, extreme reality, pyramidic drill organized with multiple teams. Within each team, there's a pyramid also. So you've got the all-knowing ones at the top of the organized event, and that would be the all-seeing eye at the top of the pyramid, right? Right. And then each team that they incorporate, and the teams are um, all the, uh, the entities that would respond to a catastrophic event. It would include police, it would include state police, highway patrol, hospitals, EMTs, media, um, just about anyone you can think of who's called in. For instance, I spoke to a man recently who's a phenomenal investigator, and he's on to Sandy Hook. And uh, he had called the, uh, I think it's called Life Star. That's the life flight equivalent medevac helicopter entity in that part of Connecticut. I think it's Danbury. And he said, why didn't you respond to Sandy Hook? And they said, we were never called. Now, they should have been called. And you have to ask yourself, why weren't they called? Well, because they weren't necessary. Because if they came, you'd have to see some bodies carried out to the waiting helicopters. And this couldn't happen, given the nature of this peculiar event. So they were left out altogether from this enormous catastrophe. So this was one team that wasn't actually included. Um, but the other teams... They are all pyramidic. The top-notch people do know that this is an iPods event, an exercise. Um, and the rest of the people at the low, lower of descending importance within that group, for instance, state police, 
they might not know. They might think it's real and kids did die, only we just can't get into the building. Yeah, it's uh, compartmentalized as, as always and there's only just a few people maybe even in the loop, but there seems to be more going on than that. But let's just kind of break that down a little bit and talk about some of the inconsistencies, the breach of protocol, the strange behavior of the people involved when they're interviewed and all these things that occurred afterwards. Uh, where should we begin? <laughs> There's just so much of this. Well, we can begin with what you said, the breach of protocol. I was talking to a friend, and he's a lawyer, and he's very, very bright, and he just told me early on in Sandy Hook, um, you just can't, you know, he being legally trained, he knew that only a doctor can pronounce people dead or some high-level person, medical professional, and it's usually at a hospital. So that started me in the direction of some poking around on the Internet, and I found that there were actual ER professionals who had commented, you know what, we get code blue people in the emergency room all the time. We get people who haven't even breathed in 20 minutes, and the whole idea is get them somewhere where there is medical capability and technology and try to get breath into them or, uh, or out of them, you know, and then you pronounce them dead. But you have to expend every effort you can. And I also um, happened upon an ambulance team. They were having lunch. This is here in California. And so I strolled up to them and I asked them about start triage because I had learned about that. And they said, oh, yeah, they said everybody uses it. They said, we don't use it because we're not responding to mass casualty events ourselves. We're transferring people hospital to hospital, you know, one facility to another. But if you're a responder to what's called a mass casualty incident, an MCI, like a bus turning over, airplane crash or something, or a school massacre like that, then you do have to follow start triage, and that is followed worldwide. You have these colored tarps that are put into use immediately that uh, designate what kind of attention, immediate or delayed or minor, you know, not necessary even, people receive. And people are tagged on site as they are found with um, labels that would indicate that they have to be transported immediately to this map because they are in critical care. So star triage is very useful, and it's used worldwide. And I've heard arguments that, oh, well, it just wasn't used at Sandy Hook. Not everyone uses it. But I'm very sorry. With an incident like this, you could poll 5,000 people in the EMT and paramedic and hospital business, the people who deal with this every day, and they would tell you, yes, they would have used start triage. It would, there would be no other option. So, you know, what I see about Sandy Hook is that there are so many excuses that are made for it. For instance, um, the school had um, closed-circuit video. It had a video system, but it didn't have video system with recording capabilities. And that's why there are no videos of Adam Lanza walking around inside. Well, excuse me, but it had a state-of-the-art video security surveillance system, and that didn't include recording capability? You're, you're absolutely right. And in fact, we should talk about Boston Breaks and the murder of that journalist. And Yeah, and let's talk about that and talk about false flags, sir. All right. Well, from, from, from where I sit, both the school in Connecticut and the Boston bombing were false flag operations. Um, the school in Connecticut had been closed for four years. 
There were no students, no teachers, no parent uh, teacher association. The paramedics were not allowed into the school. From where I sit, that was a complete false flag. It was a drill. And we've already, not we, but others have exposed the actors that were involved, the financial uh, relations with the families that were allegedly victimized, who had their homes bought and who were then given exit paths. All of that is on the record, but you don't see the media covering that. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. You've done this so many times, so let me see if I can uh, try and uh, go through the official narrative so we can hear what the official story is. You ready? Sure. See if I got it. Okay. Okay. A 112-pound, six-foot boy who never had any presence on the Internet before somehow got a hold of four giant guns and, a, and an even bigger rifle and, uh, and shot his mother uh, in, on top of a beautiful white down coverlet, leaving only a raspberry jam-flavored stain and no blood or spatters on the walls anywhere. Uh, then he took all that weaponry and managed to park in front of a school, uh, and it must have been a coffee break because the um, uh, examiner, the, uh, the coroner uh, from the county, and several people were there prior uh, in front of the school, but they must have gone away. So then he manages to shoot his way into a window, but somebody conveniently moved the uh, pamphlet thing out of the way so it wouldn't fall down, goes in the window, manages to kill 26 people, uh, perfect shots, everyone's dead except for, I think, two, uh, and then for some reason he goes back outside and puts the big rifle into the trunk of his car where it can be discovered later by somebody else, and then what happens is um, somebody shows up that we don't know who, decides everybody's dead and tells all the ambulance people and the emergency medevac helicopters, don't bother coming, they're all dead, we don't need you to check this out, and then the children are left there uh, until uh, that evening, so that the coroner tells us the next day that the children were all removed in the middle of the night and none of the bodies were shown to their parents and, uh, and this was all, um, uh, at least the evacuation of the children was photographed by a lady named Shannon Hicks who uh, had plenty of time to reframe the shot. How'd I do? Did you go down some rabbit hole, John? It sounded like you went really yeah, deep. Yeah, I, I took the day to get out of it. <laughs> you went off the deep end on, on this one. Okay, all right. Well, well all right. the reason is is because I did hear what I, I believe was an actor, some sort, which was doing some accounting problems because I think they because of the six people they were in Mrs. Soto's class, which was supposed to have been wiped out according to this other report, except for one person because they they have one too many people on the death list, and and you can hear it all. And then this is what triggered me to dig up the Gene Rosen guy, but uh, a pastor describes something or yeah. other. It's funny because we both latched onto this. Okay, you want me to play the clip? Yeah. Hearing how one little girl survived the massacre. And my colleague Lara is back now with that story. It's an incredible story. Dan, it is an unbelievable story. I just want you to know we both had the exact same clip. <laughs> 16 kids in this classroom. One survived. I spoke last night with the pastor who has been counseling this little girl's mother. One survived. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. I know. I know. I, I did some research on this guy, too. The <laughs> story of how a first grader lived by playing dead. You have one parishioner who was right there, a little girl, a first yes. grader. She was the first student who ran out of the Sandy Hook school, six and a half years old. She ran out of the school building covered in blood from head to toe. And the first words she said to her mom when she got outside was, Mommy, I'm okay, but all of my friends are dead. You, you, hold on a second. Before we go any further, 
So, I, so I saw this guy. I'm like, oh my god, this is. They made a huge mistake putting this guy uh, on camera. Could you please explain the accounting problem one more time before we move forward? This is critical because I didn't, I didn't catch this part. I'm sorry. Say again. I'd like you to explain the accounting problem before we move forward because that's the part. Oh yeah, that- the accounting problem. Yeah, there's supposed to be 20 dead children, and uh, if there were 15 dead children in Mrs. Soto's class, right? If you count 16 with this little girl, they, there was a number. There was some issue with the number of people that were killed, and it was an accounting problem. And so they were one over. So there would have been 21 dead kids. So they. So this story comes out explaining the number. The problem is, is the other guy, this Rosen character, with the six small children from also Soto's class, that were in his front yard, uh, really screws up the accounting. So they have taken the Rosen guy and pushed him aside, and we don't hear that anymore at all okay, about Rosen. Okay. So but when they took him and pushed him aside, the, the six didn't things didn't add up so they need there was one missing living person missing so they had so this story right. shows up out of the blue got it that we didn't hear about at all about the bloody girl covered in now let's t- think yeah, about yeah. this oh, yeah, for no, a second. Girl, uh, by the way it's abc news i'd like to point that out yes and it's a girl covered from head to toe mhm in blood in blood and this is her pastor her pastor who has been um uh, has been working with her. Yeah, but and then the mom told the, <laughs> told him the story. No, but no, no. The story is actually that she that this pastor is the one who is working with her to work with this child to work through her trauma. If you listen to the lead in of the story, they're saying that you know this pastor has been chosen to work with her. Yeah. Okay. So so now, let me just roll this back a few seconds here because the. the the in blood from head to toe ran outside said mommy everyone else is dead I and mean, this no one has had this at all I mean, apparently the parents were already there when this took place this thing is so full of holes Dad, you have one parishioner who was right there a little girl a first yes. grader she was the first student who ran out of the sandy hook school six and a half years old she ran out of the school building covered in blood from head to toe and the first words she said to her mom when she got outside was, Mommy, I'm okay, but all of my friends are dead. Somehow, in that moment, by God's grace, was able to act as if she was already deceased. Was she the only child in that class that survived? Yes. Of those who were left in the classroom, of first graders, she was the lone survivor. What did she tell her mom? What did she see in there? Well, she saw someone who she felt was angry and somebody who she felt was very mad. How at six and a half years old can you be that smart, that Mm. brave? Mm. I think it's impossible outside of divine intervention. (laughs) And by the way, how can this guy sound any gayer, please? I mean, just make him sound gayer. She has wisdom beyond her years. How are the mom and dad doing? I think as well as you can expect them to do. And they must be relieved to have their child, but on the other hand, so many feelings. Yes, the mom told me, and I thought this was very insightful, that she was suffering from what she called survivor's guilt because so many of her friends no longer have their children, but she has hers. A long road ahead, just an incredible story of survival and all. By a six-year-old girl. Now, did you hear in the package where the pastor also said, 
Um, she survived by playing that she was deceased. Who, who talks like that? Imagine Discovery Channel coming out and demonizing Halbig, who's been one of the top school safety experts in the country. I mean, he really is famous in that area and been on Good Morning America, Dateline as an expert, you name it. Uh, been the head of security for major universities, major school districts. He goes to speak to him, and the media goes, oh, conspiracy theorists shut down. Newtown School Board shuts down conspiracy theorists. And he's like, no rescue helicopters, weird police reports. I mean, it's fake. Blue screens, it's fake. Uh, again, we don't know what's going on. He goes further and says it's just completely fake. I don't know. You got parents laughing, going, <laughs> watch this, and then going, <laughs> method acting, going, <laughs> I mean, it's just ridiculous. You got coroners that start laughing, and I don't mean uncomfortably. I mean, like, laughing with the state police when they're giving press conferences. I mean, it just is the fakest thing since the $3 bill. Would he be touching? I mean, the basic thing that we're getting to here is that there has been no bodies presented. You, what you go through in the video is that the, the triage, the start, simple triage and rapid treatment, they have these different tarps that you, you know, that they present and put people on depending on their urgency of how they need to be helped. None of that, as far as we've seen in the footage, has, has occurred. We haven't seen any of that. Right. We haven't. There were no kids brought out because it was deemed unnecessary because they were all dead. This is what we're told. There were some adults. There was a vice principal. Her name was Natalie Hammond. And she was apparently wounded in the leg. And the story changes. She's, you can find her if you search um, for her commentaries. You'll find con conflicting and contradictory stories that she tells. I mean, she was shot through a closed door four times in the leg. She spent time in a wheelchair rehabilitating. But then suddenly her re rehab was all over. I mean, when people are wounded that seriously all up and down a leg, they show the signs of it for often for many years. They're disabled, they have nerve damage, or they have musculoskeletal, you know, uh, disrepair that has gone on, in a sense. That's a, I'm mangling the word, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Things don't heal perfectly. You don't just spring up at a hockey game and get interviewed by the media and tell them you're all fine now and you're a hero. And that's the other thing. We haven't heard from the heroes, apart from one or two. So all of this is selective. But where are the children, the children who escaped, the children who survived? Why aren't they being made into heroes? We have one odd, odd, odd interview with that little boy. Dr. Oz interviews him, Louis. And Louis doesn't really know what to say. And if you look at the body language of the women around him, one of whom is, I think, his mother and the other one possibly the grandmother, you'll see that he's being stared down. It's very evident that people want him to say the right thing. And I have pictures of little Louie. Late in the day, you can see from the shadows, he's at the firehouse with those same people. And why? If he was a rescue, he was a survivor, he was one of the kids who managed to run out of the building with his life, why are they keeping him at the firehouse at 5 o'clock that day? Uh, on Dateline NBC, Good Morning America, I'm not going to go over it all, but he really is a leading expert. When we started seeing him speak out in the last year, we went and checked into him. And Facebook.com forward slash Sandy Hook Justice or SandyHookJustice.com. And he has 
gone up there. He has investigated. I want him to briefly recap. And by the way, if he wants a bunch of business, this is the opposite way to do it with government contracts to go and stir all this trouble up. And, and he's explained, I mean, he's been visited by the feds. He's been threatened. And that's when he really turned the heat up. So as an investigator, he knows when people are acting scared. They told him, they said, just stop looking. You need to quit looking, buddy. If, if there wasn't something there, they'd just laugh at him. And you look at the videos of the kids walking in circles in and out for the news cameras, and they come right out a minute later, it's the same ones. And, you know, they catch an anti-terrorism guy out in the bushes and say they didn't. And no emergency helicopters were sent. And you've got the green screens with Anderson Cooper's nose disappearing, and you've just it just goes on and on, on and on, on and on. Perfect timing. You got Bloomberg sending the email out the day before to get ready for a big event. That's mainstream news. But now, and again, we're going to pull the article up and put it on screen. Uh, in fact, if you scroll down, guys, I'll give them the headline. Thank you. Uh, FBI says no one killed at Sandy Hook. Agency publishes crime report showing zero murders occurred in Newtown in 2012, even though that happened in December. And that's from the FBI crime statistics, which are unusually accurate. Um, they're some of the best statistics out there. Don't believe me. Just look into it because they're compiled locally. Now, you could say it's a mistake, but it just adds to everything. And, and, and Wolfgang has been back up there. He's doing a serious investigation. He's been getting stonewalled, but has learned a lot. Uh, Dr. Fetcher, you are a graduate magna cum laude of Princeton. You've written 31 books, taught for 35 years, and you're one of the sharpest minds. You remind me of my favorite professors throughout my life. And so if, if I can't get from you a mind like yours, some sort of just a dream I can hold on, on to, you know, uh, uh, this book is completely successful. We have the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that Mike Palachek ho hopes for in the beginning of your book and, uh, and, uh, and uh, the good guys in the military step forward. I mean, forgot, give me a fantasy that I can hold on to about how, how this turns out okay in the end. Do you got one? <laughs> I, I don't think there is such a, such a fantasy scenario. Oh, look, look, look. We're putting out the book. It's getting around. Amazon's gone bananas. The government's gone bananas. Amazon is even deleting Kindle versions of the book that individuals downloaded to themselves. I got a report of that today. Really? Alex, Alex Jones published an article very appropriate on Infowars and then took it down. And I want to explain why he took it down. But the fact of the matter is we have massive proof of a technique that the government has been using... <coughs> by staging events using using real or bona fide actors but families who have something to benefit because each of the so-called 26 families and their survivors have through the generosity of the American people been the beneficiaries of over a million dollars apiece in donations that all the first responders have been given some 2.3 million dollars in benefits for participating in a charade and the Newtown School Board has been given a grant of $50 million to, to build a new school at Sandy Hook. This is a kindergarten through fourth grade school. I surveyed the nation, and the average cost of a kindergarten through fourth grade school is $7 million. So what is this going to be? The Taj Mahal of elementary schools? <laughs> yeah. They're paying off in big time, and Obama and Eric Holder intended this to be uh, the, the key, the absolute central event for them to produce a, a coterie, a, a whole group of anti-gun lobbyists with seemingly impeccable credentials to promote the gun control agenda of the administration. 
where just a month and two days later, on January 16, 2013, Obama signed no less than 23 gun control measures as executive orders from his office based upon this fabricated event. Well, you know, the big thing that we found is we actually found the only footage, live footage, shot by a helicopter. It's the only footage, Alex, that has a timestamp on it when you see the people chasing each other in the woods. Remember, that's what CNN really did. They try to hook everybody, and they're showing these people running and running into the woods because guess what? They announced that a teacher just reported seeing two shadows running by the gym. Well, Alex, that footage was not shot till 12.23 in the afternoon. Now, why would you chase somebody in the woods after lunch? The school was safe and secure by 10.35. These are all scripted events. These were events that were specially shot, filmed, choreographed for CNN to have fun with it. Absolutely, and we caught them with the blue screen, and CNN's been caught faking stuff before. But let's go back to the beginning as a top, I mean, you got to be in the top five on record experts on school security in the country. You buy into it at first. I mean, I remember you saying that, and then you start to I have did. questions. I into it. But you know what? When I when I woke up is when I realized there were no trauma helicopters. They at Hartford they could have put uh, trauma doctors. No one. You got a bunch of kids shot. You don't even ask questions. Default helicopters launch. We're like you said. We're the six hundred other kids. We can't find six hundred kids. Where are they? I mean, why did they tear the school down? Why didn't they let anybody in? Why are they keeping all the records so secret? Like most other tragedies. Websites were set up to accept online donations to help the victims' families. However, the United Way Sandy Hook school donation page was shown on Google as being set up on December 11, 2012, a full three days before the massacre even happened. Uh, the police responded to a shooting at 9.40, roughly 9.40 a.m. Eastern Time. Of course, the shooter was in fact in the main office of the school. Again, unconfirmed reports of two shooters. We do, of course, now. We can confirm that one shooter has been killed, another perhaps at large. Adam Lanza's mother, sadly, was killed by him today. Why did she need to have these three weapons? Can I just follow up one thing on the I want you to answer this. Why did, she, why did she need to have these three weapons legally purchased, including this semi-automatic Bushmaster? Why would a, a woman teacher at a kindergarten need these weapons in her home, allowing, therefore, a clearly deranged son to take them and commit this atrocity. A.U. professor strikes a nerve here and across the country over his claim that the Newtown massacre was a hoax. Tonight, CBS 12 confronts him and his conspiracy theory. Tonight, Florida Atlantic University is distancing itself from its media professor and his controversial comments, but the professor himself is defending his comments and explaining himself. The report definitively says that the police have somebody else in custody. And that there's a body, if you, can you, I don't know if you have a computer, but can you pull this story up? Is there a way we could talk about it? I mean, I feel like this is incredibly important. I don't have access to it right now. Okay, so. that's fine. Um, in the story, just to briefly detail, it does say that there is a second shooter that is in custody and that the SWAT team had been sent to his house 
and that there was a body inside. Now, that was published on your site, and the source, like, what I would like to determine, if, if I have no, no ill will for being banned from Facebook. That's not my issue here. My issue is that I would like the source information on where it initially came from and why, why exactly, and I believe you guys as journalists should ask these questions as well, why is the story changing? Why is it no longer of concern? And do you not do you not see exactly what's going on here? Um, I mean, I, I feel like maybe you might be coming to do some of the same conclusions. I feel a lot of people are right now, and it's just important to ask these questions. I, I'm not sure what you're referring to. What conclusions are that? Well, the conclusion here is that I can't come to one because... At one moment, I see a story that says that they have a second suspect in custody and that the SWAT is at his house. And then at the next moment, that link is, is no longer. So I now have, you know, dozens and dozens of people online that saw the original story and now do not see the link. So this is, this is quickly becoming something. Becoming something. I, I don't know what it is, but it's becoming something. So... It's very important that we communicate here and, and really understand exactly what's going on. Because this is very important information. And there are a number of sources, as I'm sure you're receiving, that also point to a second shooter theory for this story. So this is very critical that we, that we analyze this very, very responsibly. Would you not agree? Uh, I think that um, there, you know, Again, what happens is, as stories break, especially if something as big as what happened on Friday in Connecticut, as these stories break, sometimes information gets out there and then has to be retracted. And, you know, and a number of things play into that. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. Nothing makes sense. In fact, if you really look at all the multiple sources and you line up all the information, there's even a live scanner feed uh, from the event where two shadows are passing a gym. I mean, I'm, I don't know if you've heard this, but I can provide you with the information. I don't know if you want it, but there is a scanner feed, and there are two shadows running past a gym reported by a teacher. They then put it on the scanner, and then there are multiple people running off. Well, they have, they have an individual in custody who they're talking to, and I am told they are looking at this person as possibly a second shooter. Now that changes the dynamic here a little bit, which goes from, if in fact this turns out to be confirmed, it goes from a, a lone gunman scenario where somebody has this, um, this argument with society and wants to take revenge against the most defenseless people in society, um, to a team of individuals who have gotten together and conspired to do something like this. I have reports that the teacher saw two shadows running past the building, past the gym, which would be rear. Two shadows running past the building, past the gym, which would be rear. I based here shooting. Yeah, we got. They're coming at me down Grand Point. Come up the driveway, left side. That's six. This is it. I don't. I got party on the. I got them thrown out. For that unit, be aware that we could have a second unit. Thank you. For school, to the party in custody, 4701. Continue checking. Thank you, we got one.
They did walk a guy out of the woods. I saw him walk a guy out earlier with handcuffs. He walked by us and said he didn't do it. It was a grown man. A grown man. Yeah, he's sitting in the front of the police car over there now. So, I mean... He didn't have a gun? No. I didn't see any gun. Just had him handcuffed. And he walked by us and looked into parents' eyes and said I didn't do it. How was he dressed? Uh, camo pants with a dark jacket. Where? Where? Suspect down. 
we know that, as we mentioned, one shooter is confirmed dead. They do believe there may have been a second shooter. They say they have cleared the school, so I'm imagining that search may go beyond, well beyond the school district, looking for a potential uh, person at large. Well, exactly, and, and perhaps the, the deceased shooter will be the lead as to who the second person is. Be advised, we should have multiple weapons, including long rifles and shotguns. You can see that police find a long gun of some type in the trunk of the black vehicle that's been cordoned off at the elementary school all day long today. It's entirely possible the car belongs to the shooting suspect. Police are seen clearing the gun's chamber. At least one cartridge comes out of the gun. This just shows there is still much to learn about what happened today, and police are still very much in the middle of what will surely be a lengthy investigation. But again, some type of long gun has just been found in the last half hour in the trunk of the black vehicle that's been currently taped off outside of Sandy Hook Elementary School. We were able to confirm NBC News earlier uh, that the suspect had driven to the school in his mother's vehicle. Uh, that vehicle that we've seen has been cordoned off all day, uh, and now we see that gun pulled out of the trunk there. Um, two other guns were found in the school next to uh, near the shooter, um, who is also dead. But you said it was the long rifle that was used? Yes. Not correct, sir. Danbury's reporting a possible vehicle, a purple van, two occupants with a possible ski mask that may be involved in this incident. Exit 8 heading down Stony Hill towards the center. As we have reviewed in the police audio recordings, several suspects were identified, three in which were detained, one who was killed, and the two suspects authorities were searching for in the purple van. That makes a total of six suspects, one in which we know to be Adam Lanza, as he was reported as suspect down inside the building at approximately 9.53 a.m. We have seen few reports on the identities of the other five suspects. However, the Los Angeles Times reported that one of the parents was briefly taken into custody because he had ran around the school to look for his daughter. This individual has been identified as Chris Manfredonia and claims he was at the school to help out Victoria Soto's class in making gingerbread houses. In another report by CNN, Diane Lycata was supposed to attend the school to help build gingerbread houses in her son Aiden's class, whom was also a student of Victoria Soto. She asked her husband, Robert, to go instead, and he had planned to be at the school for 2 p.m. to help with his son's project. What makes this situation curious is that if the gingerbread house session was planned at 2 p.m., near the end of the school day, then why was Chris Manfredonia taken into custody at 9.44 in the morning? Perhaps there were multiple sessions planned for parents to attend, which could indicate that Victoria Soto's class was planning on making gingerbread houses for a majority, if not all, of the school day. Chris Manfredonia had to have been the first suspect announced on the police scanner because suspects 2 and 3 were seen running away from the police behind the school and into the woods, which was clearly caught on video by a news helicopter. In the video, we can clearly see two people running from authorities, and officers documented this fact on the police audio by using the terms them and their. Uh, six, this is, uh... 
I don't know, I got a party on the... I got a call down. For that unit, be aware that we could have a second unit. from a couple of sources that he was definitely dressed in black but one of the sources is saying only one that he was dressed as a member of the clergy that he actually they thought he was a minister I was last seen in Stony Hill by uh, exit 8 Hold right now they're going to transport uh, over there people in the van they had masks one was dressed in uh, what appeared to be a nun's outfit This comes from a couple of sources, that he was definitely dressed in black. But one of the sources is saying, only one, that he was dressed as a member of the clergy, that he actually, they thought he was a minister. But anyway, he was dressed in black with the body armor. He came in with a Glock semi-automatic pistol and a six-hour semi-automatic pistol, automatic pistol. And he also somehow got into the school the civilian version of the M16 rifle, an assault rifle. And here is the, the police chief or the sheriff there in Sandy Hook. One thing that's uh, becoming somewhat of a concern, and that is misinformation that's being posted on social media sites. Sites. It is important to note that we have discussed with federal authorities that these, these issues are crimes. They will be investigated statewide and federally wait a minute so if you post something on uh, facebook that is uh, not true it's a crime and you'll be prosecuted federally and prosecution will take place when people perpetrating this information are identified again <laughs> Jaws, crap we're going to hey, jail good luck, sheriff. <laughs> all information relative to this case is coming from these microphones and any information coming from other sources cannot be confirmed, and in many cases, it's been found is inaccurate. So I simply, uh, that's the newest twist today. Twist! I love how he throws it. It's the newest twist in what? The script? Uh, that we want to make sure that's perfectly clear. Play the douchebag jingle. <laughs> yeah, definitely. The websites that contain information relative to this case are not being posted by the Connecticut State Police. All right. Then we have uh, this little report. Right now, millions of people across the country are opening their hearts and wallets to help grieving families in Connecticut. Unfortunately, consumer problem solver Connie Thompson says thousands of scammers are already at work taking advantage of your kindness. Yes, and you know boy. how I feel about these buzzards, Mary. The buzzards. Internet is on fire. <laughs> with Sandy Hook scams. It's reportedly so bad, even liking a post on Facebook can get you burned. So this is this is nothing but discredit, discrediting everything and anything. Everything. On, but online. can I point something, so a little discrepancy here? Sure. Why does this idiot cop go after the, these, these scammers instead of going after someone posting wrong information, which he says they're going to do? Of course, they're not going to go after anybody. No. The Newtown Bee is the local newspaper for the small town of Newtown, Connecticut. Due to the small town nature of the community, it is likely that the newspaper had a somewhat close relationship to Sandy Hook Elementary School. 
Most schools have several articles published in their newspaper, and it is highly possible that Sandy Hook was no exception. In an article written by the Newtown Bee on the day of the shooting, it clearly stated that Sandy Hook principal Don Hodgsprung told the Bee that a masked man entered the school with a rifle and started shooting multiple shots, more that she could count, and it went on and on. This testimony indicates that she was a witness to the crime. It would make sense that she would have witnessed the crime seeing as she is the principal and she was inside the school during the shooting. However, Don Hawksprung was the first victim killed at the school and it is impossible to get a verbal testimony from someone who has been pronounced dead. The Newtown Bee has since posted a statement apologizing for the mistaken error they had published. However, due to the description of the killer given by whoever the reporter talked to, it would seem that the witness did see something of importance and was one of the very few witnesses who actually got a glimpse of the killer. It truly is remarkable that the local newspaper could make such a drastic error in their publication, and this has left countless people scratching their heads and confused in what to believe. Due to the gag order put in place restricting people for questioning victims and witnesses, it has been quite hard to get any real straight answers or facts. Two, why a.m. on the police scanner recording, we hear an officer reading a license plate number, 872 Yankee Echo Oscar, Y-E-O, and identifies the vehicle as a possible suspect vehicle. A few moments later, we hear the name Christopher A. Rodia amid some scrambling and the birth date, August 6, 1969. After hearing this portion of the audio, many people believed that the name given was whom the vehicle belonged to. This has led to many theories which depict Christopher Rodia as one of the suspects that was led out of the woods in handcuffs, and the possible second shooter. However, upon further investigation, we discover that this is not the case, as Rodia claimed he was pulled over in his mother's vehicle about an hour's drive away from Sandy Hook Elementary School. The officer present with Rodia at the time has verified this fact, and what we are actually hearing is the officer reporting the identity of Rodia during that traffic stop. The officer reading the plate number is a different officer altogether, and the officer reporting on Rodia is actually the officer whom had Rodia pulled over for a parking violation, Detective Vincent O'Banner. Let's listen to the audio recording again so you can hear the difference in the officer's voices. Two officers reporting two separate events, which has led to many conspiracy theories and much confusion. Eight seven two Y A T E Echo Oscar. Eight seven two Y E O. Possible suspect vehicle. Rodia operator. First name is Rodia R O D I A. Christopher Page. August sixth, sixty nine. Why is it that we have heard nothing about the two suspects that were apprehended from the woods? There was also no update given to the public in regards to the suspects in the purple van. We have seen undisputable evidence that suspects were detained, but we have not been given an official explanation on the identities of the individuals that were taken into custody. It only makes sense 
that the people that were apprehended, aside from Chris Manfredonia, were people that the authorities do not want us to know about. Seeing as there were so many suspects in this case, it would almost appear that it was a conspiracy, or a group of individuals, or a team involved. Since we know that some members of this team were apprehended, and their identities were not revealed to the public, it is to my belief that these people were federal agents of some sort, in which Newtown authorities were not aware of being on the scene. This would explain why they were detained, and their identities have remained unknown to the public. Agents of the intelligence community, such as the CIA and the FBI, have various aliases and identities, and this is because if they ever get caught during a highly classified mission, they have an alias they can use to avoid giving up their true identities and intentions. Adam Lanza, an awkward and camera-shy 20-year-old with a personality disorder that would lead him to commit mass murder. This is where he lived, an affluent street in a beautiful New England town, a place where people are comfortable with keeping guns at home. His mother and father were divorced, but in a statement his father Peter said, No words can truly express how heartbroken we are. We are in a state of disbelief and trying to find whatever answers we can. We too are asking why. His aunt said the family had no idea of how disturbed he was. If he needed help, I know they would have gotten it for him. Because they were the type of parents, even when they were married, as well as being separated, if the kids had a need, they would definitely fill it. In Adam Lanza's road, people described their community as close, but he wasn't part of it. I was probably on the bus with him every day for years, but he wasn't really the type to stand out or notice. But then again, it's a long period of time, but you're, there's a lot of people on the bus and you don't really take notice of everybody. So he really kept himself to himself? That's, yes. And, and there was no indication that somebody from your own street was going to do something like that? None at all. What's so interesting, Walt, is that about three years ago, back in 2009, it's really the last time we have any hard record of any classes he took, any courses he was enrolled in. After that, right at the time that the divorce was finalized, it seems that Adam Lanza simply fell off the face of the earth. There is no record of anything that he did, what he may have accomplished, who he met with. We've had a very difficult time even finding friends who knew him uh, from the period 2009 on. So he existed, but he existed in a world that really nobody knows about, Wolf. It's a mystery, and um, all the reporters been asking around if they, if anybody knows them on the block, and nobody, nobody knows them, which is odd for this neighborhood. It's very odd because a lot of people in this neighborhood know each other, and then if they don't know each other, they know of somebody. Did you say was Adam maybe something went wrong with him? I, he a normal kid? I don't remember Adam except when he was a child. Uh, I knew him when he was younger. And even someone we spoke to who lived just two doors down from the Lanzas said they had very little information about the family and didn't really know Adam Lanza. What's so crazy about Adam Lanza is he, he appears to have fallen off the grid. There are basically three years that are unaccounted for. The last time there's any record of him was back in 2009 when he was a student at a local university here and he was taking several classes there. But after that, 2009, he just sort of falls away so nobody really knows or understands what he was doing over the last couple of years. Law enforcement officials examining the computer taken from Adam Lanza's home are hoping to find any clue that can explain his actions. What are authorities looking for on these drives? Documents, emails, instant messages, any type of chats, uh, any type of pictures. 
uh, any types of documents that would involve plans or lists or things like that. When you look at his intent to destroy those drives, what does your gut tell you was on his computer? Uh, obviously uh, incriminating evidence without a question. Reports say the hard drive was smashed to bits, but Venema says there's still an outside chance of recovery. And I want to ask you something that Pete Williams, our Pete Williams reported first on Saturday. He said there had been some kind of an altercation at Sandy Hook Elementary School the day before the shootings and that it was believed Adam Lanza might have been involved in that altercation with up to four teachers or administrators. Can you shed any light on that? That's been spoken about a great deal during the number of press conferences that we've had. And uh, we've been able to look at that and find out that there was no report of any altercation uh, involving uh, the shooter, the suspect, if you will, uh, at all at that facility. A majority of the misinformation produced by the authorities and the media have involved the Lanza family in an attempt to sell the public on the lone gunman, psychologically disturbed story. Some examples of the reports that were later determined to be untrue include arresting Adam's brother in New Jersey and claiming that he was the guilty suspect, claims that Nancy Lanza was a kindergarten teacher at Sandy Hook Elementary School and that her body had been found inside of the school, reports that stated Adam would regularly attend shooting range sessions with his mother, statements claiming that Adam had entered the school the day before and got into a dispute with four teachers three of whom he killed during the attack, and countless other examples of the authorities and media reporting misleading information in relation to the case. There has also been several witnesses that have been proven to have lied during statements and interviews, or it's because they have told the truth and the powers behind the scene have put out information that contradicts these victims and witness accounts. Because of those implications, it makes it especially hard to filter out good information from bad information. However, it does not take a rocket scientist to see that things just don't add up to the official story. The more one looks into the details surrounding the shooting, the stranger the story becomes, and the harder it is to believe that someone like Adam Lanza suddenly snapped, killing his own mother and targeting an elementary school to commit mass murder. As we have seen from several reports, Adam and Nancy Lanza lived rather secluded lives and hardly anyone can provide us with valuable information which may explain the motive behind the crime. Instead, we have been given an abundance of false information which has caused many people to question the sources of this information. Some people have accepted the official story, taking the bait hook, line and sinker. However, it is the ones who remain skeptical and independent research that have provided us with the most relevant information. When Adam's brother was arrested as a suspect of the crime, the media reported that he was likely arrested because Adam had his brother's identification on him. However, Ryan has stated that he had not seen his brother in a few years prior. The school nurse, Sally Cox, claimed in the following interview that she knew Nancy Lanza and Adam and that Nancy worked at the school, information which was later found to be untrue. Sally also originally claimed that she was face to face with the shooter and made eye contact yet later claimed that she hid under her desk and saw the killer's feet enter the office and then leave. Why would such a vital witness be telling us conflicting stories unless she was covering up for something, or she is telling the truth and was later discredited using false information? As we shall soon see, it would seem more likely that she is lying and providing false information herself 
and she is not the only one guilty of misleading the public into believing certain aspects of this case. The mother of the shooter in this case, the mother of the shooter is also dead. She is a teacher at the school. So dead, she is a teacher at the school. And state police also confirming today that neither Lanza or his mother had any connection to that school. And as I walk down the streets of Newtown to get to this location, not far from Sandy Hook Elementary, I happened to run across a woman who had tears in her eyes, and she was being led by two younger women. And I asked if she was okay. It turns out she was the school nurse at Sandy Hook Elementary and was for 15 years. She described the gunman coming into her office. They met eyes, she jumped under her desk, and he inexplicably just walked out. Just absolutely chilling, horrifying details that are emerging here in Newtown tonight. But I did ask if it was known around this school that this young man, apparently a kindergarten teacher's son, was an issue, whether he had any problems, and she said not at all, and I asked if she knew the suspect's mother and she said she did and that she was an absolutely loving person and a very caring experienced kindergarten teacher just the kind of person you would want with your five-year-old children and state police also confirming today that neither Lanza or his mother had any connection to that school neither Lanza or his mother had any connection to that school and we are told that the mother of the suspected shooter, who is also dead at the scene, was also killed. She is a teacher, and she was also killed at that school, according to our law enforcement sources. According to our law enforcement sources. And we are joined now by another survivor of this tragedy, the school nurse, Sally Cox. Thank you for coming in this morning. And I know this is difficult, but take us back to that moment. When did you first know something had gone wrong? Hearing loud popping noise I mean just something I've never heard in my life and your mind doesn't think that it could be that but when the secretary called out to me it with terror in her voice it just told me there was something terrible happening and that's when you went under the desk my, my computer desk yes and while you're under there you actually see the, the feet of the shooter there's an opening in the back for wiring and um, as I was crouching down I, I could just I could see my doorway because you in the office you enter the office and then into my office and when I heard the door close you know and he probably walked in and I was looking and I saw I could see him from the knees down see the legs right in front of you 20 feet away she described the gunman coming into her office they met eyes, she jumped under her desk, and he inexplicably just walked out. Imagine a crisp December morning, just a few days before Christmas, with all the excitement that brings, especially for children. You're dressing your child for school, doing all the things parents do, packing a lunch, making sure the clothes match, loading a book bag or backpack with pencils and paper and maybe even some crayons. You slip in a note of love and encouragement like so many parents do. It's busy. It's frenetic. It's the joy of being a parent. 
children combine our gratitude with this hopefulness that only the innocence of a child can provide. On the way out the door, you give your child a kiss on the forehead and watch as that child walks out the door for school. You bask in this moment because this is what unconditional love feels like. The love a parent has for a child, even from a kitchen window. You even laugh as your child wipes your kiss from their forehead. If only children knew how much their parents loved them. And then a few hours later in a classroom surrounded by the innocence of other children, a bullet pierces that same forehead you kissed just hours before. The love of your life, the center of your universe, the source of your joy has been killed at an elementary school in Connecticut. Grief sends you to a depth from which you will never ascend. Your child's life is gone, but really you are gone. You may still be breathing, but you are gone. You have to keep living, perhaps for your other children, but something in you died just as surely as your child has died. And then a radio talk show host named Alex Jones tells his listeners it was a hoax. Your child isn't really dead. Your grief is an acting job. Your pain is manufactured for 10 years. He deceives and he lies. And you know he's lying because you saw your dead child's body. You touched your dead child one last time. You planned the funeral. You picked out the small casket. You gave one final kiss as your child lay in a coffin. Every waking moment is filled with anguish and despair. But Alex Jones, tucked away in a studio in a faraway state, is heaping coals on your grief by denying the death and therefore denying the life of the only thing that mattered to you. He's getting rich on your grief and pain. Alex Jones was on trial this week in a Texas courtroom for defamation for denying the murder of children at Sandy Hook Elementary School. He's a career offender when it comes to denying people's pain. He's denied some of the worst tragedies this country has ever suffered through. Lying about anything is bad, but it is particularly abhorrent when you tell parents who buried a child that their child is not really dead. All microphones are not equal. It's one thing to hide behind a microphone tucked away in some studio and spew malice and misinformation. It's another thing when the microphone you're sitting behind is in a Texas courtroom. This week, when confronted by Lady Justice, Alex Jones finally admitted the truth. And the truth is, he lied. Those children were murdered. It wasn't a hoax or a false flag. He was the false flag. He turned the death of children into a 10-year-long torture chamber for their parents. How does someone capable of exploiting the pain of grieving parents and murdered children have an audience in this country. A Texas jury found Jones liable and awarded both actual and punitive damages. We should need a jury or a judge or a courtroom to condemn that kind of behavior. He told lies for money when his own money was on the line. He finally admitted the truth. The only war he's waging is on the truth and those who value it. And this week, a Texas jury said, Alex Jones loses, and the truth wins. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Some prefer the Old Testament, which tells us a false witness will not go unpunished. 
and he who breathes out lies will perish. I don't want anyone to perish. I just want him to stop lying about dead children. Hey, Sean Hannity here. Hey, click here to subscribe to Fox News YouTube page. This continues to be a, a very complex investigation, and there's a lot of contradictory information out there, but there is some new information this morning from a couple of federal officials um, and state officials. They say now that uh, there were actually four handguns uh, recovered inside the school, not just two, as we were initially told. Four handguns, and apparently only handguns, that were taken into the school. We knew that uh, Adam Lanza, the man said to be the gunman here, also had a assault-style, AR-15-style rifle that he had taken to the school that was in the car he drove there, his mother's car. But we've been told by several officials that he left that in the car. But you said it was the long rifle that was used? Yes. So, the long rifle was, was discovered in the car. It's not correct, sir. A long gun of some type in the trunk of the black vehicle that's been cordoned off at the elementary school all day long today. It's entirely possible the car belongs to the shooting suspect. Police are seen clearing the gun's chamber. At least one cartridge comes out of the gun. This just shows there is still much to learn about what happened today, and police are still very much in the middle. Uh, uh, did everybody hear the question? No. Uh, uh, was was uh, given what I deal with all the time is this one over the top. Um, I've been at this for a third of a century, uh, and it's my sensibilities may not be the average man uh, but this probably is the worst I have seen or uh, the worst uh, that I know of any of my colleagues having seen and uh, that all the more makes me uh, uh, proud and, and grateful to our staff who uh, uh, to a man have uh, have just behaved uh, most professionally uh, uh, and, and strongly and um, I hope uh, I hope they and I hope uh, the people of Newtown uh, don't have a crash on their head later okay right now are you sure? All right, how excited were you to see Dad? Lieutenant Governor and I have been spoken to in, in an attempt that we might be prepared for something like this playing itself out in our state. I hope... Uh, I hope they and I hope uh, the people of Newtown uh, don't have a crash on the head later.
Prior to the Sandy Hook event, Newtown, Connecticut was most famously known for a 300-acre property called Fairfield Hills. Operating from 1931 to 1995, the Fairfield Hills Hospital housed the area's mentally ill and criminally insane. Uniformly connected by underground tunnels, the 16 red brick buildings was where cruel psychiatric experiments took place involving electric shock therapy, hydrotherapy, and frontal lobotomies. Mysterious deaths and suicides were also connected to this macabre facility. Because of its haunting history, the MTV series Fear used Fairfield Hills as its setting in one of its episodes. The movie Sleepers, starring Robert De Niro and Kevin Bacon, was also staged in Newtown. Passing through the fearsome tunnels underneath the hospital proved haunting for aspiring adventurers and thrill-seekers. For well over 80 years, Fairfield Hills was Newtown's sole cryptic mystery. However, with the passing of the year 2012, the town of Sandy Hook, located within Newtown, infamously and perhaps forever, replaced Fairfield Hills' enigmatic nature. Everyone loves a mystery, especially the unsolved variety. But some mysteries are so far-reaching as to impact thousands, even millions of people. It was on December 14th when the impossible happened. And looking back now, perhaps it was impossible indeed. We were told that a 20-year-old so-called autistic kid with no clear motive opened up on a classroom of elementary school children, allegedly killing 20 first graders, six adults, and himself. Only two women were reported to have survived their injuries, including Natalie Hammond and another woman whose identity was initially redacted. Prior to his shooting spree, Adam Lanza is said to have murdered his own mother, Nancy Lanza, in her bed. So the story goes. In the immediate aftermath, skeptics felt there was something terribly wrong with the official story and the way the media reported it, with the way the parents acted. the way the coroner acted. With the way the neighbors acted. Nobody, nobody knows them, which is odd for this neighborhood. It's very odd because a lot of people in this neighborhood know each other. And with the way public officials act. A lack of physical and video evidence also enhanced the curiosity of the skeptics. A strong public reaction quickly followed the peculiar press conferences and interviews, resulting in a few YouTube videos receiving over 10 million views. As time went on, public reaction died down and the anomalous behavior was swept under the rug and forgotten. However, a few independent journalists and concerned citizens never forgot and stayed the course by deciding to investigate the event for themselves to see truly once and for all if the event was in fact real or staged. Did the conspicuous acting of Robbie Parker, the stumbling and fumbling coroner, and the apparent walking around at the firehouse point to a sinister staged event for specific government and corporate agendas? Or were these perceivable red flags just a figment of the imagination? The following segments 
dealing with a variety of anomalous aspects of the Sandy Hook events, the investigation, the official report, and the people involved, were contributed by independent journalists in the Sandy Hook research community. Each participant's segment is narrated in their own voice. However, they're identified only by their YouTube handle and appear in shadow. This is for two reasons. First, we stand firmly that the information we've provided is accurate and the few conclusions presented are reasonable. There are unknown thousands of people of like mind that could have presented the same information. Secondly, throughout the course of our investigation, there have been numerous attempts to derail our efforts. Most of these have been in the form of attacks on our person and have included direct threats. There is good reason to protect our identities. Ultimately, the viewer's focus should be on the information and not the presenter. Shakespeare wrote, All the world's a stage. After the Sandy Hook event, the stage was set for the parents of the alleged victims to promote gun control, mental health checks, far-out school security measures, and changes to school curriculums, all the while collecting hundreds of thousands of dollars through government grants and donations. Some actors on this stage are literally just that, actors. Some are entertainers, and some are connected to groups who would benefit from this agenda. Let's take a look at a few examples. Francine Lobus Wheeler, mother of alleged victim Ben Wheeler, is a former personal assistant to the finance chairwoman of the Democratic Committee, Maureen White. Both Maureen White and her husband, Stephen Ratner, are members of the Council on Foreign Relations. And Ratner is known to have, quote, ruffled feathers with gun control advocate Michael Bloomberg, unquote, according to the New York Times. Francine is an actor and a singer who has performed such amazing hits as Jumping to Conclusions, Nicky Nicky Knock Knock and I Can't Tie My Shoes. Jumping to conclusions, jumping to conclusions, hopping up and down and calling paper cuts contusions. I tell you all in earnest, I don't have to tie my she also starred in the animated porn Mutant Aliens in 2001 as the voice of Josie. Her husband David is also an actor. He ironically starred in the dark gun film Faithful in 2001. Both can be seen lobbying for gun control in various mainstream media interviews. In fact, Francine became the first person other than Obama or Vice President Biden to deliver the White House's Hi. weekly address. As you've probably noticed, I'm not the president. I'm just a citizen. And as a citizen, I'm here at the White House. Mark Barden, parent of alleged victim Daniel Barden, is a lifelong entertainer, composer, and musician. As shown on the WhiteHouse.gov website, Barden leads policy and outreach efforts for Sandy Hook Promise an organization that is committed to affecting policy in the areas of mental health, gun access, enhanced school security, and the reduction of firearm magazines. Nicole Hockley, mother of Dylan, 
graduated from Trinity College, where she majored in English and theater. She has publicly admitted regret of not continuing her acting and directing career. Perhaps with Sandy Hook, she got her shot. Jimmy Green, father of Anna Marquez Green, is an entertainer and musician. Both he and his wife, Nelba Marquez Green, are strong advocates for gun control. Scarlett Lewis, mother of Jesse Lewis, is pushing school curriculums with a new age type of cognitive training. In pursuit of this, she is joined by a former CIA agent, Christopher Cook, as well as Barack Obama's sister, Maya Suatoro. She is seen practicing this technique in front of an oversized Newtown Choose Love banner. Her communications degree is no doubt handy at speaking events. She appears to revel in the reaction to her preposterous and frankly unbelievable stories of Jesse mystically signaling her from beyond the grave. A medicine show to forward her school curriculum agenda. I feel him all around me, all the time. I knew in my heart that Jesse had done something brave by running into the line of fire, trying to save his friends, which he was successful. I don't know when Jesse had written it, but it was shortly before he died. And it says, Nurturing, Healing, Love. And two days before he had died, he had drawn a picture of an angel standing in front of what is obviously a bad man. I feel like Jesse was born brave. Jesse was 11 pounds when he was born. And I remember going to the nursery, and all the nurses were gathered around the window taking pictures. And I walked up and I said, what are you taking pictures of? And they said, there's this enormous baby that's crawled at, almost out of his bassinet. And that was Jesse. Michelle and Bob Gay, Alyssa and Robbie Parker, Cindy and Mark Mattioli, Krista and Rich Ricos, all parents of alleged victims, have teamed up with Safe and Sound Security. Claiming to keep kids safe, Safe and Sound Security has partnered with Navigate Prepared, a big brother-like security system that surveils entire schools with 360-degree video feeds of classrooms, utility closets, and hallways. In addition to schools, Navigate also monitors government buildings, such as the town hall and library in Michelle Gay's hometown in Massachusetts. As founder of Safe and Sound Security, Michelle Gay has promoted this Orwellian school security system throughout the U.S. Navigate has even donated a system in honor of Michelle Gay's alleged daughter. Lenny Posner and Veronique Holler Posner are the parents of Noah. Lenny has concerned himself with people who believe Sandy Hook was a hoax. He has participated in group discussions, chats, blogs, and has talked to many researchers. In his article published by the Hartford Quran, he bashes people whom he terms conspiracy theorists and hoaxers. Lenny is the chairman and CEO of Tracksware, a company that specializes in removal of internet slander, internet defamation, mugshots, defamations of character, and online public records. This guy's company would come in handy to any Sandy Hook hoax perpetrators with prior convictions. He could ultimately remove any negative associations from the Internet. 
Could he be hanging around online bloggers and researchers for the purpose of protecting the Sandy Hook parents? His wife, Veronique Holler's angle is best described by Tyranny News Network. You may remember Veronique Posner or Veronique Holler Posner. Her detailed memorial for Noah Posner, the son she claims to have lost, was featured by CNN's Anderson Cooper. Take some time to learn more about Veronique Holler, and you'll find she's a legal counselor for the government of Switzerland. You can reach her directly at Switzerland's embassy in Washington. How can we be certain this is the same Veronique Holler Posner? It was widely reported that she was a nurse by profession. Get yourself a copy of the 7th Annual Conference of the State's Parties to Amended Protocol 2 to the Convention on Prohibitions or Restrictions on the Use of Certain Conventional Weapons which may be deemed to be excessively injurious or to have indiscriminate effects. She's listed as a diplomatic collaborator for the Federal Department of Foreign Affairs representing Switzerland. Her real-life mission to prohibit weapons mirrors her actions while engaged in the grieving mother scam. While pretending to have lost a six-year-old child to a gun-wielding madman, she said, quote, I think he had a mother who, at worst, aided and abetted him. She added, quote, I think there was gross irresponsibility, words more fitting of an attorney than an oncology nurse. It gets much worse, though. As I said, she is only pretending to have lost a child. Following the trail of Veronique's friends and family, you arrive at Patricia Ordinez Holler. Right at the top of her Facebook photos page is the familiar face of Noah Posner and what looks like his sister and two drawings obviously made by a child of about six. But the strange heading above the four photos reads, Ten years ago, happy birthday Kevin, we love you. One of the two drawings reads, quote, Pappy Dirk, have a great birthday at the island, from Kevin. Examining the photo, we've all been told as of Noah, we see its exif date is Saturday, December 15th, 2012, only one day after the Sandy Hook event. Isn't it more likely the photo said to be of Noah is really that of Kevin, taken 10 years ago? And it is confirmed despite many claiming otherwise, that Veronique is, in fact, from Switzerland. An article from Haaretz, focusing on Noah Posner, dated December 28, 2012, states, quote, Veronique was born in Switzerland to French parents who raised her in Scarsdale, New York, unquote. Now, can it be considered a mere coincidence that two Veronique Hollers, both from Switzerland, are calling for unconstitutional gun control measures in the U.S. Such weapons have no place in our society. Veronique's anti-assault weapon stance is echoed with most of the visible Sandy Hook characters and has been shown to go to even extreme lengths, as in the case of Mark Barden and his children. My daughter Natalie was, was interested in asking him if he could pass some kind of legislation so that the only people that had guns were military personnel and law enforcement. Whether you are anti-gun or pro-gun is not the issue. The issue at hand is that legislation has been passed as a result of the lobbying of these parents after an event that, as we will see, may be entirely fabricated. As a result of the passing of Senate Bill 1160, Connecticut citizens have publicly voiced their frustrations. With the stroke of a pen, from the ivory tower with the gold top, 
you've decided to create me to be a felon. A Class D felony. For doing absolutely nothing wrong. Okay? The Sandy Hook characters are larger than life. They're not afraid to lobby, speak publicly, or pursue their agenda, all the while looking comfortable doing it. Sandy Hook funds reaching upwards of as much as $27 million have been issued out to victims' family members. Yet, parents such as the Kowalskis are still comfortable requesting annual goals for as much as $500,000 while soliciting for these goals at public events. The information presented regarding the Sandy Hook parents is public, can be found by anyone, and is a culmination of research done by many people throughout the past two years. The aforementioned background information was included in this segment to arm you, the viewer, with essential information to get you closer to the event. Watching the mainstream media will only give you one side of the coin, as many media pundits have claimed that the Sandy Hook characters were not actors or entertainers. Yet throughout the past two years, independent researchers have proved otherwise. And despite their claim that the Sandy Hook event would not define them, the Sandy Hook characters have virtually given up their day job and attained a full-time lobbying position. From Delaware to Illinois to Arizona, the Sandy Hook parents have traveled the country promoting their agendas. This documentary is not meant to focus on speculation, but rather focus on lesser-known facts, inconsistencies, and lies that the general public is unaware of. Remember when Robbie Parker walked out on stage to speak to the media the day after his daughter died? Although common sense will tell you he was acting, this documentary will not focus on pure speculation. Instead, the intention is to give you a broader background and a new perspective on the reality that is Sandy Hook. This is Sherry. I just have to mention this. Here's the official police report as things happened. And a trooper video of over four hours doesn't show any children evacuating the school. Well, I found the timeline of when they did evacuate the school of all the kids. All right, 9.57, this McGeever runs with whoever across the parking lot towards the Sandy Hook firehouse. 9.58, Keene arrives on the scene and assists with the evacuation of the students and teachers from Sandy Hook Elementary School to the firehouse. They started evacuating the school from the official time at 9.58. All right, so let's uh, see them evacuating the school. Here is that trooper, that four-hour trooper, vehicle, you can see it is parked on one side of the parking lot, and it has the view all the way over. It has the time at 9.57, and even the seconds. The first thing that we should be seeing is at 9.57.40, runs with blank across the parking lot. Okay, let's see it. What are we supposed to see at 9.57.40? We're supposed to see a running across the parking lot. Oh, content redacted. So maybe that's when they ran across the parking lot. 
Now, within a few seconds, they're supposed to start evacuating the school. Now, remember, this trooper is parked all the way on one side of the parking lot and views the parking lot the whole time. Any moment now, you should see either many, many, many minutes of content redacted or we should see huge group of children coming out. Of course, we need to give them time to start doing it, you know. Okay, so maybe this is when they're coming out. 10 o'clock. Teachers, blank, and student run across parking lot with a detective. Okay, so at 10 o'clock and 45 seconds. Okay, let's uh, keep going here. We haven't seen the masses of children yet coming out. Oh, somebody else um, at 10.01 starts helping with the evacuation of the students and the teachers. Content redacted. Now, this should last quite a few minutes if they're getting the kids across. I mean, there's a lot of kids to get across. Remember that one picture of FBI agent and so on running with a few kids? And they were pictured right there. And the children were taken to the Sandy Hook Firehouse at 10.03. Leading a group of young kids out the front at 10.03. Let's go back to 10.03, shall we? There's 10.03. Let's see. There's 10.03.06. Let's watch this. Video does not match the story. Children are escorted from the front of Sandy Hook. Another large group coming out. All right, and then at 10.06, so we're going to have some children being escorted, and at 10.06, the people that were in the conference room should be escorted across. And at 10.07, escorts blank across. 10.07, children are escorted out of the building. 10.07, children are escorted from the northeast corner. 10.08, children are escorted out of the building. At 10.12 is when they bring another group of children out to the firehouse, out from the gym area. And we're not seeing it. I'm not seeing the content redacted either. In other words, you know what this shows? This shows the official report does not match the video. This shows there are not masses of children that were evacuated at 10.14.59 escorts children to the firehouse. This vehicle, this police car, showed all the way across. The vehicle is right there looking all the way across during the four hours. As you've seen, it does not match the timeline. All right, there you go. Official story doesn't match video. My nickname is Swansong, and I am the editor of InsaneMedia.net, and this is the Don Hawksprung File. An online article from the Newtown Bee was posted December 14, 2012. 
In part, the article claimed to have received a quote from the principal of Sandy Hook Elementary, who stated that, A masked man entered the building with a gun and fired more shots than she could count. The only problem was the principal, Don Hawksprung, had allegedly died in the initial hail of gunfire. A few days later, an embarrassed and ashamed Newtown Bee published a retraction and apology of the anomalous article. So, should we just chalk this one up to the chaos of the day and write it off as a mere mistake? Well, not so fast. While studying the anomalous article, a Bing cash date was noted. A cash date of December 13, 2012, the day before the event. A shocking discovery, to say the least. But before we get our underwear in a bunch, let's see if this seemingly apparent evidence of foreknowledge is but a simple glitch in the system. Puzzled by who the author of the article actually was, as there was no name attributed, I at first assumed it could only be associate editor Shannon Hicks, since she was the first reporter from the Bee on the Scene. To confirm, I contacted Miss Hicks, who suggested I speak to Curtis Clark, chief editor of the Newtown Bee. Mr. Clark, in turn, stated that the writer of the article was John Voquette, a well-known radio personality from Newtown and an associate editor for the Bee. Voquette attributed the mistake to the commotion of the day. How could such a crucial misidentification be attributed to the commotion of the day when Hawksprung was a known personality in the community and even appeared in videos from the Newtown Bee in years past? Voquette's response was that the woman with whom he spoke, face to face, shared some of the same physical attributes as Hawksprung. How this unknown and unidentified woman, who shared the same attributes as the Sandy Hook principal, who shared first-hand knowledge of the alleged shooting, and who herself claimed to be the school principal, came into contact with the Newtown Bee in the first place, is also a great mystery. But the greatest mystery of all, and perhaps the only bit of information that could make sense of this mess, is the Bing cash date of December 13th. If the cash date was found to be correct, it would be monumental, as it would prove foreknowledge of the event, and disprove anything Boquette and the Newtown Bee stated. And, as Dr. Wayne Carver so famously said, everything would come crashing down on the heads of Newtown. In an attempt to confirm the validity of the Bing cash date of December 13th, I contacted Bing. Unfortunately, they have no number to call, so all correspondence was done by email. After seven months of correspondence, I finally got my answer. Leonard, a Microsoft customer support member, stated the following. I understand that you wanted to know the accuracy of the last crawl date that you were able to see from the cache page from Bing. To directly answer your question, the date setting which the web crawler shows on the cache page is accurate. Not satisfied with one response, I went for a second opinion. This time I got Mark. Thank you for getting back to us. The server cache time is accurate since it is being updated once our crawler visits a certain page. For example, our crawler visits a page today, June 3rd, 2013. The date reflected on its cache page will be June 3rd, 2013. The date will change after our web crawler visits the page again. The final icing on the cake came when I found an article entitled Superintendent Reports on State of Schools. This article from the Newtown Bee focused on an event that occurred on December 10th, and it was also cached on December 13th, clearly making this cache date accurate. And, if that cache date is accurate, then, as they say, that's where the rubber hits the road.
Considering these cash dates are correct, which they most certainly are, this is Microsoft we're talking about after all. This brings up many questions. Was Don Hawksprung not supposed to die, but somehow did, in perhaps a drill gone wrong? Or was this an entirely fabricated event, a drill in which nobody died, and Don Hawksprung is somewhere alive and well? Her daughter, Erica Lafferty, after all, is comfortable making light of her mother's death as she poses with a CIA sweatshirt. I forwarded my original article to Lafferty. She never replied. Nevertheless, there are many questions, and it's about time somebody started answering. Hello, my name is Peter. I'm an independent journalist, and because of that you've probably never heard of me. But if you have come across any of my work, it's likely you found it on my YouTube channel, Tyranny News Network. Before I created that channel, I had a blog at tyrannynews.com, where I began to publish articles on various social, socioeconomic, and political issues. It speaks to the success of YouTube that my blog fell far short of receiving the attention that my YouTube channel has. And attention, in the form of subscribers to my channel or through whatever means, has always been my goal. Attention to what, you might ask? Which I don't find offensive in the least. It demonstrates that you're thinking critically about what I'm presenting and what my motivations are. Regardless of how corny it sounds, my purpose has been to help others discover history and learn about our present society with enough raw data to form their own perspectives. The major media outlets don't provide us with unvarnished, meaningful news, and the result is a nation of people with very limited understanding of events taking place in their world. What little they do know is a combination of fallacies and trivial points that aren't sufficient to form a useful worldview. I've been fortunate to have stumbled onto researching deep politics. So, as I see it, Sandy Hook is an issue important enough that every American should have a detailed account of the event available to them, and I mean full disclosure. That's why I'm participating in this project. I'm going to begin my segment with what some will surely call a minor issue, but I tend to measure the significance of certain evidence using an entirely different scale. I view evidence that is synchronous or seemingly coincidental as highly interesting. On the day of the Sandy Hook event, while the activities we've all seen were taking place at the primary crime scene, there was another crime scene being discovered. The investigation was said to have spread into areas near to the school, where it appears from the limited footage available that a search for suspects was taking place. Later in the day, events were taking place in New Jersey, of the arrest of Ryan Lanza, for instance. But the only other officially reported crime scene besides the school itself was the Lanza residence on Yogananda Street. At the time of this production, the Lanza home was left mostly intact. There's very little that would indicate it was the scene of a horrible murder. Some minor damage to the garage door, a notice posted on the door. It appears much of the furnishings are still in the home. The neighborhood is back to its pre-school shooting pace. But back in December 2012, the neighborhood was a hub of activity. Residents were stopped and questioned. 
Yogananda Street, on which the Lanzas are said to have lived, had been blocked by squad cars and police tape. With the release of the final report, a number of aerial photos of the street and the Lanza home was provided. But it appears from what can be seen that the photos were taken within the span of only a few minutes, and no indication of the time of the photo series is given. But there is something vaguely interesting about one photo. This white and blue house is said to be the Lanzas. This home next door is said to be the home of the Trent Acosta family. Upon examining the driveway at the Lanza home, there doesn't appear to be any obvious signs of activity having taken place. However, when we examine the Trent Acosta's driveway, there appears to be tire tracks from cars that drove indiscriminately over their lawn. To help visualize the tracks, I've highlighted them. Based on what the aerial photos depict, one could draw the conclusion that they were taken later in the day or afternoon. But were there any aerial photos taken from that morning? It turns out that there's at least one. Here's a photo depicting the same general area with the Lanza home on the left and the Trent Acosta home on the right. But oddly, the Lanza home doesn't appear to be the focus of attention. The home next door, on the other hand, can be seen to have at least two vehicles in the driveway and a couple of figures, which I assume are investigators. It doesn't appear that the home is being used as a staging area for convenience. The barricade created by the squad car and police tape is at the next door driveway. If I didn't know better, this early photo of the scene would give me the impression that the secondary crime scene was this greenhouse. What were they doing at the home next door? This isn't evidence of anything conclusive at this point, but it's an anomaly that has puzzled me since first seeing this photo. Hi, I'm known on YouTube as Odin Rock. On December 14, 2012, I was driving my daughter home from daycare when a news bulletin about a school shooting in Connecticut came on the radio. As soon as we got home, I made sure my daughter was occupied and then turned on the TV news. I was expecting to see a scene of chaos, of weeping enraged parents, gnashing of teeth, pulling of hair. What I saw instead was first responders lounging around smiling parents nonchalantly walking calm children to their cars. Over the next few days, the scene only became more bizarre, with conflicting accounts and victims' families seemingly ecstatic and hungry for attention. There were many troubling and suspiciously anomalous characteristics to the event, but what really solidified my gut feeling that something was obscenely wrong with the situation was the blatant cover-up and official concealment of evidence to the point we are left to ask if there is any evidence this event took place whatsoever. We could postulate this cover-up began more than a year before the event, when raised Bill 1054, an act concerning the disclosure of pediatric autopsy reports, was introduced in the Connecticut legislature. Initially opposed by Chief Medical Examiner Wayne Carver as redundant, he later inexplicably did an about-face and supported the bill, which would end up being passed in October 2011, effectively concealing all pediatric autopsy reports from public examination. Why do this? Was this ever a problem? Fast forward to the weekend of the event. 
Debbie Aurelia, new town town clerk, effectively breaks the law by refusing requests from the Associated Press, the New York Post, the Hartford Courant, and other media for copies of the death certificates of the victims. Miss Aurelia, the subject of two ethics hearings in 2010, and the future wife of Sandy Hook Fire Chief Bill Halstead, soon went so far as to craft legislation with state representatives Belinsky, Hovey, and McKinney to restrict all death records and marriage records for perpetuity across the state of Connecticut. What else are we talking about? Are we still talking about death certificates, which have been available for hundreds of years? Uh, I believe the bill covers four key elements. Um, crime scene photos are our top priority for us, without a doubt, and that is for the adults as well as the children. Um, the 911 tapes, because hearing can be just as bad as seeing. Uh, there is also um, questions over the death certificates, which have some private information on them, and also statements, which uh, we would like to be redacted. FOIA reps and professional genealogists were vehemently opposed, along with the press, and editorials were run against it in papers as nationally prominent as the New York Times. As public suspicion intensified, the cover-up went into full swing as the original bill was amended to include public release of 9-11 calls, any photographs, and even witness statements. The alleged victims' families were even brought to the Capitol to lobby for the bill, going so far as to stand on the floor of the legislature on the last night of deliberation. They continually stressed the non-release of photos of dead children, even though no request had been made and the release of such photos had been unheard of. Supporters went so far as to bring race into the debate by enlisting the Black and Puerto Rican caucus to push for the bill to cover all homicides in Connecticut, thereby making all homicide records inaccessible to FOIA requests. The parents also continually brought up in press conferences that they feared the use of such material by conspiracy theorists and internet bloggers. The bill, which had been drafted in secret behind closed doors and without the usual opportunity for public comment, passed at 2 a.m. on the last night of legislature before adjournment. It left the release of 911 calls up for debate, but the release of all other records for all homicides in Connecticut would be left up to the discretion of the families. The bill passed unanimously with only two no votes and was signed by Governor Malloy on June 5, 2013. Outrage over the bill from the Freedom of Information advocates led to the formation of the Victims' Privacy and Public's Right to Know Task Force. The 17-member task force was weighed heavily in favor of privacy, with only two representatives on the side of the Freedom of Information, and they were repeatedly berated at almost every meeting for their perceived insensitivity to the victims' families. Over six months, the panel heard from members of the press, law enforcement, and the victims' families who repeatedly claimed their rights were being violated by those seeking evidence of a crime there was still no substantial proof of even having occurred. The law also created a 17-member task force to study and make recommendations to the Assembly on what should and should not be released about crimes. Among those selected to serve on the task force is Officer Jillian Knox of the New Haven Police Department's Victim Services Unit. In my city, uh, the victims that I interact with on a daily basis, um, they feel as though everything needs to be private. The legislature and the governor were prompted to act because of Sandy Hook, but it became clear that some believed that was unfair to all of the state's other crime victims. Families have a very 
real interest in not being being uh, uh, publicized on the radio and television. I think there's a balance of that the public has a right to know certain things, and I think that's something that this committee needs to focus on. There are other lawyers, victim advocates, media representatives, and state lawmakers on this panel that must make recommendations on where the lines should be drawn, including Representative Deborah Hovey, who represents Sandy Hook, and who has expressed strong opinions about the media. Initially, especially those first four or so months, um, I just felt that the media was over the top. At the meeting to review the final report of the panel, the two Freedom of Information representatives were surprised to learn that a five-year prison term Class D felony provision for the public release of information pertaining to any homicide had been inserted as a recommendation in the report. The report was approved with 15 members' support, the two Freedom of Information members abstaining with strong objections. The report resulted in the drafting of Senate Bill 388, which proposed the non-release of any information that would constitute, quote, an unwarranted invasion of personal privacy, applicable to any person, not just the families of crime victims. All victims and witnesses' names would also remain private. Access to basic information, including the names of witnesses, is essential to reversing wrongful convictions. This bill would make those efforts impossible in the state of Connecticut. The language in this section undermines transparency and accountability in our criminal justice system on a massive scale. It's, it's Orwellian, is what I think it is. Well, I, it's, I, it's, it's, yeah. my solution is just to keep things the way they are. You want to leave 13311? I, I want to keep public records public because it's not just murder, it's not just homicides that is issued, it's all public records. At the meeting to review the final report, and this is important, and everybody should go watch the video I made of this incident. At the meeting to review the final report of the panel, the two FOIA representatives were surprised to learn that a five-year prison term Class D felony provision for the public release of information pertaining to any homicide had been inserted as a recommendation in the report. The report was approved with 15 members' support, the two FOIA members abstaining with strong objections. Completely it's, absurd. It's, it's completely absurd. None, none of this makes any sense if Sandy Hook was a real event, but it makes a whole lot of sense if there's a tremendous amount to cover up because it was only a drill, and the whole state is embarrassed because it was all complicit in the event, so they're doing everything they can to conceal access to the kind of ev evidence that would refute the story and demonstrate it was a hoax. These these two FOIA representatives, one of them is almost in tears that they had been sitting through the six months of uh, meetings with these people, you know, and, and if you've ever been in that kind of a commission or something, you, you develop relationships with the people in the commission and they're all being friendly with you. And then they pull the rug out from under you at the at the last meeting for the recommendations and basically just bald face lie to you that that uh they had discussed this this five year penalty for for releasing um any information pertaining to any homicide okay not just sandy hook any homicide it's just a travesty law enforcement and the state can get away with whatever they want to do in connecticut now okay the citizens of connecticut have no recourse now in effect, the bill left it to law enforcement to decide what information it would release. 
The implications are horrendous. Those considered wrongly convicted would have no access to information for appeal, and the decision to release information pertaining to corruption and a wide array of abuse by law enforcement would be left up to that same law enforcement agency. The legislature ended up in deadlock on the amended privacy bill, which means the original draconian limits on release of information still stand. At this point in time, the citizens of Connecticut have no access to records on any homicide, effectively leaving it up to law enforcement what information will be released. In addition to this, Peter Lanza has refused to provide any information on Adam Lanza's mental health. This did not stop him from giving an interview to The New Yorker. When child rights organization Able Child petitioned to have the information released on what medications Lanza was on, they were told by the Deputy Attorney General it would not be released because it may stop the mentally ill from taking their medication. Add to this the massively redacted official report. The reluctance to release information every step of the way can only be seen as a blatant cover-up. Why not release Lanza's medical records? For that matter, why not release any evidence at all of Lanza's presence in the school that day? It may surprise the general public that there has been no evidence presented of a causal nexus between Lanza and the alleged crime. Surely the release of this information would end most of the speculation by concerned members of the public who have been deemed hoaxers, by those who should have nothing to hide. Aren't the alleged parents of these children interested in this information? Would it not help us to prevent an event like this in the future if we knew Lanza's mental state leading up to that day? Hello, my name is Jeff C. I'm an independent blogger and media analyst who runs an alternative YouTube channel called Free Radio Revolution. My specialty is to break down events that are reported by the corporate media and try to expose the truth behind these events and what they really are about. I started covering Sandy Hook right after the event occurred. At first I reacted like many, with grief and anger. But my focus quickly shifted to all the inconsistencies of the official story and the complete ineptitude of the corporate media in investigating the alleged shooting. One of the very first characters that caught my attention was none other than Gene Rosen, a retired pet sitter who had become the focal point of numerous corporate media stories on Sandy Hook. You need way more room cause your heart's too big for your house. Gene Rosen, Gene Rosen, roses bloom and elm trees sway for what you did that fateful day. Gene Rosen was portrayed by the corporate media as the hero of Sandy Hook for having provided shelter to six Sandy Hook elementary school children in the wake of the alleged shooting. Important thing to keep in mind while watching this segment is that Gene Rosen has an extensive background in acting and is the CEO of the Newton Cable Advisory. He has also appeared in several stage productions, including a recent production of The Fantastics. Gene Rosen's story about how he came across the six children on his front lawn after the Sandy Hook shooting changes with every interview. In one interview, he's talking about how he came out of the loft where he fed the cats. In another one, he's talking about he was on his way to breakfast. 
Then in another interview, he said he saw the children through his window. Finally, he said that he was walking home from breakfast and saw the children on his front lawn. Upon approaching the children, Gene makes reference to a man speaking kind of harshly in some interviews, as well as a school bus driver. While in other interviews, Gene completely omits the man speaking kind of harshly to the children. And I saw a man talking to them in a very harsh way, and he seemed agitated. He kept saying, "It's going to be all right. It's going to be all right." One would assume, with、uh, Gene's background as being a psychologist who worked at the Newtown. Fairfield State Hospital that he would be able to count. Unfortunately, according to the official report, the bus driver who Gene constantly refers to claims that only four children were brought to Gene Rosen's house. Gene Rosen's account of what the children told him about their traumatic experience seems very scripted and poorly acted out. Watch all the theatrics he puts into describing the kids who had allegedly just witnessed their beloved teacher Victoria Soto get shot, and take note of the multiple inconsistencies. I can't go back to the school. We can't go back to the school. We can't go back to the school. We don't have a teacher. We don't have a teacher. Mrs. Soto. Mrs. Soto. Mrs. Soto is dead. There's blood. She had blood in her mouth, and she fell. And there was two guns—a big gun and a small gun. I can't go back to the school. I can't go back to the school. I don't have a teacher. I don't have a teacher. And then the other boy said, "Mrs. Soto, my teacher's been shot." I I I could not fathom this. I could not imagine what they were talking about. I did not. That I could not fathom in my mind what had happened. Equally puzzling is what Gene did with the children that came to his house. Either the parents came and picked them up, or some of them went to the firehouse, or all of them went to the firehouse. Either way, Gene goes out of his way to illustrate the joy that the parents had when they came to the house. Explain to me what that moment was like. <laughs> When their parents came, I was so happy. Their parents is what they needed, and their parents came to the house. My arms were not long enough. Once again, Gene Rose's testimony completely conflicts with that of the school bus driver in the official report. Whereas Gene Rosen said that all the parents came to his home to pick up the kids, or all the kids went to the firehouse, the school bus driver says in the official report that three of the four kids were picked up by their parents at Gene Rosen's house, while the fourth child was taken by both of them to the firehouse. Gene Rosen repeatedly mentions a woman who came to his house with a face frozen in fear after the children had been collected by their parents, or after Gene had taken them down to the firehouse. This woman, whose name was only mentioned once,、uh, is none other than Scarlett Lewis, the mother of Jesse, who was another hero on that particular day. Jesse was a hero that day. He was not just a victim. I, I can't imagine the situation. Six-year-old having the presence of mind to take that kind of action, I, I would think he would be like all of them, just terrified. The purpose of this storyline is to bridge the children of Victoria Soto's class to Jesse Lewis, who saved their lives by telling them to run while Adam Lanza was reloading his magazine.
This was the worst thing that happened. This beautiful woman came to my door. She was so pretty, but her face was frozen. It was frozen in fear. It, it looked... And so, trusty Gene Rosen, the former psychologist and theater actor, has his entire story debunked neatly by the helicopter footage that was filmed on the morning of the shooting at 10.30 a.m. One can clearly see Mr. Rosen bumbling around, perhaps even reciting his lines. There's even a brief interview which he gives which proves that he was there, which of course means that he couldn't have been at his home with the children, nor could he have been there to receive Scarlett Lewis. I want to hold them. I want to be with them. I want to tell them that there is light after the darkness. We have already established that Gene Rosen has an acting background. So would it surprise you if we have confirmed evidence that Rosen was indeed acting throughout all of his interviews? Let's take a look at one video in particular. It's a Gene Rosen video that is not from a news outlet, but was uploaded to the internet nonetheless. In this video, Gene is caught rehearsing his lines. Let's check it out. School bus driver picked them up. I think she had just let off some kids or was in the area. And they came inside the house and they start talking about blood coming out of her mouth. And they said, what are we going to do for a teacher? Our teacher's dead. Uh, on that, I mean, they were so distraught. As you've seen from the video, it was the cameraman who corrected Gene. How could a cameraman correct the person talking unless the entire thing was scripted? In case you didn't catch it, the reason why the cameraman corrected Gene was because in this version of the story, Gene states that the children immediately started talking about their teacher dying as they entered the house. It was at this point when the cameraman whispers, no. And Gene waves his arms up in the air and states, uh, uh, Matt, I mean. In his mainstream media interviews, Gene changes the script by stating that the kids didn't tell him about the teacher dying until 15 to 20 minutes after their stay in his house. How did you first learn, and it was four little girls and two little boys, that they had just run literally from Victoria Soto's classroom, a, a teacher who was killed in front of them. I, I didn't learn about it till around 15 minutes or 20 minutes into their stay at my house. The obvious reason why the cameraman and Gene are flustered is because Gene would be negligent if he didn't immediately call 911 after hearing the news of a shooting in which a teacher was shot dead. Even though his story is ridiculous as it is, it would hold zero ground if he had done nothing but have the kids play with toys while knowing their teacher was murdered. Who is this Matt guy anyway? Was it him who uploaded the video to the internet? And why did he do it? Gene was literally caught in the act lying. He provided statements to the police. If he is caught deliberately providing false statements, he could be charged with criminal acts for filing false reports and obstruction of justice, just to name a few. Not only that, but donation sites were put up in his name. He collected money based on the scripted statement. He was also spotted walking around at the firehouse. Could it be that he was rehearsing his lines there as well? 
Is there anyone out there that believes the school bus driver picked up a random assortment of kids after school was in session and then bypasses the firehouse and proceeds to drop them off on a stranger's lawn? Then go inside to drink juice and play with toys instead of calling the police? Are we supposed to believe this man who is a known actor and who was caught rehearsing his lines? Was Gene included in this event because of his close proximity to the school? Was he given donation money to keep him quiet? In a fair and just society, we could present these questions and the obvious discrepancies of Gene's testimonies to the justice system. As problematic and concerning as it may be, there is evidence of foreknowledge of the purported shooting that took place in Sandy Hook. Plain and simple, web pages with details of the event were put online before the event took place. And the websites where these pages appeared were the official websites of well-known organizations. This evidence of foreknowledge has been met with some of the most belligerent arguments that claim this is untrue. The most common argument being that we simply lack the knowledge required to analyze the data. Data in these cases refers to the cache of a web page kept by search engines like Bing and Google. So before I get to the evidence of foreknowledge itself, let's identify a few terms and definitions that will help you gain a better understanding of a topic you may or may not be that familiar with. Google is a company that provides many services, but for our purposes we're going to focus just on their web search service. When you search the web for a word or a phrase using Google, Google presents you with a series of pages that best match your search criteria. The results are ordered by how close they match, so results on page 1 should be better or more relevant than those on page 20. What is Google providing links to? What are these results? Most results linked to by Google are simply web pages, although some of the results will be PDF, Microsoft Word, or other documents. Google's proprietary technology determines when and where those results show up. Since the vast majority of results and the evidence in this case are web pages, we'll limit our discussion to those. Google uses a very complicated and private method of choosing which results to display and the order in which to display them. The system is ever-changing and increasingly more sophisticated to abate abuse of the system. Google has detected and prevented the most clever of tricks over the years. Why would anyone want to manipulate Google's system? Imagine if you were a company that sold widgets online and had 20 web pages that advertised your widget. Imagine if, through some gaming of the Google system, every search at Google always produced links to your 20 pages before any other pages. Whether the search was Angelina Jolie or quantum mechanics, your pages came up. Although this is an extreme example, you can see how this might be desirable. How do web pages get into the results shown by Google? Before a web page can be presented as a search result, Google must first become aware of the page and index it. Then, all the various features of the page and its content can be analyzed so it can be included in search results when appropriate. This function is performed by Googlebot. Beginning with the pages it already has in its index and adding new page maps of links provided by site owners, Googlebot scours these pages for any changes and links to any new pages. Once complete, Google's index is updated accordingly. 
This process is ongoing, involving many bots and many billions of pages. With that background under our belt, let's examine how to determine the date that a page was last indexed by Google and what that page contained at that time. When Google visits a web page for the first time, determined by a proprietary criteria, Google may capture and store a copy of that page. You can access the cached version of a web page by clicking the link labeled cached, shown with most search listings. Each cached page is assigned an ID and the date it was last cached. Pages that are more popular will be cached more often. Each time a page is cached, the date is updated, and if the page is changed, the new content will overwrite the old. What constitutes a page is ultimately determined by the URL address of the page. So, if a page exists that is identical in every way to another, except the URL is slightly different, Google will index it as a separate and unique page. If the URL of a page is changed in any way, then Google will consider it a new page. Even if the content of a page remains the same, a change to the URL will cause Google to index it as a new page. At around the same time, it will remove its former reference to a page. Some pages may be indexed and usually cached as well by Google once, but never qualify to be indexed or cached again based on a number of factors. In these cases, the cached version of the page and the date of cache may be as old as nine years. Google is not concerned with certain things that may be contained within the URL, like dates, for instance, other than keywords and phrases it will use to determine the general content of the page. So, if you were to create a page with a URL containing the date 7-15-1999, Google will still use the current date when indexing it. Google always records the date their bot visits a page, without exception. Hopefully now you understand the basics in a theoretical sense. Now let's look at some real-life examples to see if we can definitively determine if there was foreknowledge. And we'll begin with a smoking gun example that would stand up in court. While we're at it, we'll take note of just how far one person went to confuse people and hide the simple truth. It all began when the website for the Arlington Red Devils posted a web page on their site with a link to a document entitled, A Guide on How to Talk to Children About Sandy Hook. The guide was originally published by Crisis Management Institute. The date of the article shown on the page itself is 12-10-2012. The URL of the page also includes that date. As we just outlined, the only date that we can truly rely on to tell us when the page was last accessed by Googlebot and indexed is the date it was cached, or the cache date. To see that, we simply find the cached link for the page, and when Google's cached version of the page loads, that date will always appear in Google's disclaimer box right at the top of the page. Remember though, the cached date is updated each time Googlebot returns to visit the page. So going through this process after almost two years would likely show a much more recent date. But thankfully, many people were curious enough in the days immediately after the event to grab a screenshot of what the page looked like back then. And those screenshots show Google's cache date for the page as 10-13-2012, one day prior to the actual event. So let's add it up and see what we have here. 
Disregarding the content of the web page itself, which we've learned can be changed over time, we start with the URL of the page. As you can see, the URL contains the phrase, talking with your children about the Sandy Hook tragedy. That can only be a specific reference to the Sandy Hook shooting event. Next, we see that Google reports a cached date of 12-13-2012 for that URL. Remember, URLs can't change or Google considers it a new page. And I might add that just because we see clear evidence that Google had last indexed the page on the 13th, it's very possible the page had been indexed earlier, say the 10th, at which time Google's cached date would have shown the 10th. Case closed. Here we have an irrefutable example of foreknowledge of the event by at minimum one day. Now let's see how this simple bit of deduction was extrapolated into a book-length investigation that, despite its length, never came to this conclusion. A fairly popular alternative news site, Fellowship of the Minds, ran an article back on January 13th of 2013, reporting that this same webpage appeared to have been online four days before the Sandy Hook event. The article caused a stir and racked up many comments. But a few days later, an update to the article was added, explaining that many comments had been received, but one in particular from a person named Peter Offerman seemed to provide more insight. So Peter's comment was featured, which began an odyssey of endless technical jargon. This first article garnered 167 comments before comments were closed. Many of those comments were chapter-length diatribes by Mr. Offerman that danced around the technical details of everything from blogging systems to web servers, each promising to provide the conclusive evidence in the next issue. This went on for a further three articles and nearly 200 further comments. It was clear to me when I posted a comment to the first article that Mr. Offerman was clearly attempting to confuse the issue and doing a very good job of it. The owner of the site, who happens to have penned the four articles, was likely dazzled by the display and unfortunately taken for a ride. But the evidence was clear. Everyone's familiar with the United Way, and it's not surprising that they established a fund to solicit donations for those impacted by the Sandy Hook event. But it appears they too jumped the gun on the event and published their webpage advertising the fund well in advance of the event. In the case of the United Way, a page was noted in the Google search results entitled Sandy Hook School Support Fund and was published to their website for the Western Connecticut region. Unfortunately, I couldn't locate a screenshot taken early enough showing Google's cache date for the page. However, we do see Google's document date of the page shown as December 11, 2012. This isn't definitive since Google may derive that date from the page content, which is subject to change. In some instances, the date is grabbed from the page where the date is actually connected to another article simply linked to on the page. When I examined a copy of the page, I found no dates whatsoever. In those cases, Google claims to revert to the cache date. But since the document date of 12-11-2012 isn't definitive proof of foreknowledge, we need to dig deeper. The website insanemedia.net has done extensive research into this topic and provides us with some important clues. First, they report that the United Way has responded to allegations of foreknowledge and flatly rejected them. But this is where it gets interesting. 
Subsequent to that, a public relations firm contracted by the United Way forwarded an email to the Daily Caller from an engineer at Google reading as follows. This is a technical glitch on our end. The date Google's search engine first saw the page was 12-14-2012 at 6.58 p.m. We're looking into a fix, but it may take some weeks. Being somewhat of an expert in these matters, I can say that this explanation is utterly ridiculous. In fact, I find it very difficult to believe that a Google engineer would make such a claim. But given that this is presented as the official explanation from the United Way's perspective, let's see if there's any other evidence that would support that. As shown right on the page in question, the United Way Fund was actually established by the Newtown Savings Bank. Not surprisingly, the president and CEO of the Newtown Savings Bank is John Trentacosta, the very same Trentacosta that owned the home next door to the Lanzas and where all the activity was taking place on the morning of the event. Mr. Trentacosta is a bigger fish than some might think, as he's a member of an important council at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Mr. Trentacosta is quoted as saying, The fund came together as a response to countless requests, presumably to counter any criticism that the fund was simply a fraudulent scheme. But that's just speculation. However, the statement does present a problem. We know from the Google engineer's statement that the web page soliciting donations for the fund was indexed by Google on 12-14-2012 at 6.58 p.m., the very evening of the event. How much earlier than that time was the page first put online is unknown. But in any case, one has to wonder how it was possible in such a short time to first receive those countless requests, come up with the concept for the fund, meet to plan the whole thing, establish the bank account to collect those donations, coordinate with the United Way, determine the slogans and taglines for the campaign, create the artwork and the web pages themselves, and finally to get all of that up and running online. If it were possible at all, it would be a world record. I don't know how many people have donated, but the total taken in is in the millions. I find the explanations given to account for how quickly this fund was put together to be dubious. In the end, it may be this potentially fraudulent fund and the legal pursuit to reclaim those donations made by innocent people who were simply duped that becomes the first domino to fall in the greater fall of the Sandy Hook hoax. The official report, a 6,700-page data dump deprived of any useful or pertinent information because of its plethora of redactions. Well, that's how most people have described the official report as released by the Connecticut State Police. This report could have put to rest all of the skepticism from people who believe Sandy Hook was indeed a manufactured event. Instead, because of its many inconsistencies and contradictions found in size, even more questions have been raised. The excuse of a rush report cannot be used in this case because it took almost a whole year to release it. Due to their lack of urgency, Lieutenant Paul Vance and State's Attorney Stephen Sedensky came under heavy fire for their lengthy delay. When asked about when he planned on releasing the report to the public, 
Lieutenant Paul Vance merely replied, quote, Nobody ever said that we had to have it done by a certain time, unquote. The egotism of Vance and the withholding of information seems to be a recurring theme. After all, he did in fact call himself the master. I think it's it's, it's up to you to, to talk with your legislators and talk well, with your... Well, the legislators your... don't listen. They no, don't listen. I can do about it, man. Yes, there is, there's because you can, can refuse to follow unlawful orders. Okay. If you okay. can't do that, that means you're an enemy of America. Okay, ma'am, I'm not discussing this with you. I think our conversation's over. I suggest you contact your attorney, ma'am. So really, okay. so, all right, just remember, okay, you're the servant, we're the masters, okay? And if you come to master, my home... Ma'am. I'm the master, you're really, absolutely right. You're the thank master? You very much for your con- no, you're for your the servant. Ma'am. You're the servant, we're the masters. Yeah. Thank you come you to my home. Conversation, ma'am. Okay. And in mid 2014, he found himself in a similar bind when he did not release another crime report within a respectful manner of time. Was there anything unusual about the state police handling of this because of who was involved? Not at all. A thoroughly complete investigation, arrest was made, was turned over for, uh, to Superior Court for prosecution. Nevertheless, this report, which can be downloaded at the government website, cspsandyhookreport.ct.gov, is their final word, their official statement. And when we find inconsistencies and contradictions within this report, they should be obligated to defend it. Now, one humongous inconsistency can be found in the supplemental DNA reports from the forensic laboratory. The report numbers are shown here. This DNA report consisted of swabbing various areas of the murder weapon found at the Lanza home, which was a 22 caliber Savage rifle. Other items swabbed included a Christmas card, an envelope labeled for the young students of Sandy Hook Elementary School, the adhesive side of the stamp, and the exterior and interior door handles of the car located at the crime scene. These items were then compared to the, quote, known blood of Nancy Lanza, unquote, and a liver swab from a person allegedly said to be Adam Lanza. The results from this report are shocking, to say the least. Based on the conclusions given by the forensic science examiner and analyst Eric Carita, both Nancy and Adam Lanza are eliminated as contributors to the DNA found on the following items. In fact, the only items swabbed that could be connected to an Adam Lanza are mixtures. Now a DNA mixture is a given sample that contains the DNA of more than one individual. If you were thinking that Nancy Lanza's DNA would be one of the individuals included in the mixture, you would be wrong. Nancy Lanza was eliminated as a contributor to all of the aforementioned items. Now given these facts, many questions now are raised. How could there be more than one person's DNA found at the crime scene when according to the official report, Adam Lanza acted alone? Was the DNA contaminated? If so, how could there be any conclusive results? Astonishingly still, On January 7, 2013, a hit was obtained with a convicted offender DNA profile from the New York State Police Investigation Center for the letter entitled, For the Young Children of Sandy Hook Elementary School. Who is this New York convict, and what are his connections to the school, and to Adam and Nancy Lanza for that matter? Was there ever a follow-up? This seems as if it should be treated with the utmost importance. So why was it swept under the rug, 
hidden in a 6,700-page pile and never addressed publicly. How can we believe this official report when the forensic analyst himself concludes that both Nancy and Adam Lanza are eliminated as contributors to the DNA found at the crime scene? You have to ask yourself, what exactly is going on here? We attempted to find an answer when an email was sent to forensic science examiner Eric Carita. In a portion of the email, Mr. Carita was asked the following, quote, Would your conclusions indicate any of the following? 1. Adam Lanza was not the shooter. 2. Adam Lanza did not work alone. 3. There was definitely somebody else involved. Was there any follow-up regarding the convict from New York and his possible involvement? Who he is and if your findings resulted in him becoming a suspect? Do you know the contents of what was found inside the envelope and why it was crucial to the investigation? The report states that the DNA sample of Adam Lanza was taken from his liver. Is this common procedure? Were you ever brought into contact with the shooter's body, or was the liver swab the only source of Lanza's DNA? Thank you for your time, and I look forward to hearing from you." Unquote. We have yet to receive a response from Mr. Carita. However, there has been one update during the production of this video. A Freedom of Information request has been granted to News Channel 8 of Connecticut regarding the letter to the young children of Sandy Hook. Although the convict from New York is still unknown, this is what we are now being told. David, how did you even learn this letter existed? And it was mentioned in the Sandy Hook report released about a year ago, but that report really gave no information about it. Tonight, we have a photocopy of that letter, and it's addressed to the students of Sandy Hook, sent days after the shooting mysterious message claiming to be an apology from the father of the shooter. It was referenced in one of the thousands of pages in the Sandy Hook report, a report criticized for leaving out too much. It took a Freedom of Information request from the News 8 investigators and a complaint to the Freedom of Information Commission to get our hands on the contents of the envelope. A day before a scheduled hearing, the state police asked us to pull back our complaint. They would just give it to us. Police tested it for fingerprints and DNA. It did not come from Peter Lanza, as the envelope says. They tested it for Adam Lanza's DNA. Police say it didn't match him either. The only match they found was an unnamed felon in New York who they believe licked the envelope. This still does not explain why Adam Lanza's DNA was not found on various items at the Lanza home or why there were DNA mixtures found on those items, despite there being only two alleged people in the house. Nancy Lanza was eliminated as a contributor to all aforementioned items. Moving on to the DNA found at Sandy Hook School, we arrive at amended supplemental DNA report 6. Here we find even more bizarre information. This report includes all of the weapons and magazines Lanza allegedly carried in the school. Strangely, it is permanent substitute teacher Lauren Rousseau's DNA, not Lanza's, which is found on the pistol grip of the rifle, shoulder stock of the rifle, feed area inside of the magazine, the Glock magazine, 9mm Sig Sauer magazine, PMAG magazine, and 13 cartridges. Even stranger yet, of the 27 results found in this report, all but three are mixtures. The only unredacted DNA source that is distinctly listed alone is that of Principal Don Hoxbrum. In result number 18, it clearly states the results are consistent with Don Hoxbrum being 
the source of the DNA profile from item number 59S1, a 10 millimeter auto cartridge. Now if we move to the supplemental DNA report 5, we see that this same item number, 59S1, was matched up to an Adam Lanza. Surprisingly though, Lanza's DNA was eliminated as a contributor to that specific item. Now if that wasn't odd enough for you, according to this same report, he was also eliminated as a contributor to the DNA found on the stock area and forearm of the shotgun, the shotgun shells, and various magazines and cartridges. The shotgun, if you recall, was found in the trunk of the Honda Civic. That very Honda Civic's interior and exterior door handles were also swabbed, but once again, Lanza's DNA was nowhere to be found. He was, however, said to be included as a source for a Sig Sauer magazine, and item number 58S1, a different 10mm cartridge. The suicide weapon he allegedly used contained a DNA mixture. Now as you can see, by cross-referencing the various DNA reports, nothing seems to add up. Adam Lanza's name, for example, appears in most DNA reports, but disappears from report 6. Why would he be redacted? And why do we find Lauren Rousseau's DNA on so many items? As one blogger states, it is understandable that body fluids of victims could come into contact with the weapons carried by the murderer. It stretches credibility when that same DNA is found on bullets inside of loaded magazines. Was the supplemental DNA report deliberately designed to confuse and beguile the public in an effort to cover up the truth? If not, what are we supposed to make of these anomalous findings? The forensic science examiner is silent, so we can't expect to find an answer there. We could ask the lead Sandy Hook investigator from the Western District Crime Squad, but he, William Podgorski, age 49, died suddenly of an undisclosed illness. Lieutenant Paul Vance has proven he's unreliable, as he provided the public with false information as to where the gunman was found. In a CBS interview, he quite matter-of-factly stated that the gunman was found in the hallway. However, we learn he was supposedly found in the classroom. And where was the gunman found? In the hallway. Outside of the classroom. Correct. Perhaps the press would help investigate these seemingly blatant inconsistencies. However, they have proven as well to be silent on such issues. The organization Able Child stated it best. Prior to the release of the investigative report, the Courant was all over the shooting at Sandy Hook, but has failed to report on investigative details that scream for answers. It's one thing for lawmakers to ignore investigative material, but when a leading press organization blatantly fails to report on important investigative details, the people of the state truly are not being served. And finally, with all of the inconsistencies and lies surrounding the event, how can we be certain if DNA samples from the crime scene were really processed? Judging by the few unredacted photos we have of Classroom 8, the classroom in which two adults and 15 children were allegedly murdered, we see no evidence whatsoever of a massacre. The first two photos are images taken just inside the classroom. The last three were taken after the interior had been cleared. In the end, it is difficult to come to any accurate conclusion of what the anomalous supplemental DNA report suggests. And if public officials like Vance really do view themselves as masters, then we the people, in their eyes, are the servants and don't deserve answers. If nothing else, that is what has to change.
The now famous images of the students being led away from the Sandy Hook School by educators and law enforcement personnel were captured by Shannon Hicks. Her photos of the student evacuation were some of the first images shared with the broadcast media and became front page news on papers around the world. Before these pictures were released to the AP and other media hubs, Shannon made a slideshow of some of these images and uploaded her slideshow to the Newtown B YouTube account. This video went live on December 14, 2012. Now, according to Hicks, she took these photos at approximately 10.09 a.m. on December 14, 2012. Many researchers have pointed out numerous inconsistencies in Shannon's snapshots, including various wardrobe anomalies, parking lot inconsistencies. In an effort to pinpoint the exact time that these photos were taken, I decided to examine the EXIF metadata of Shannon's photos. Finding versions of her images with intact metadata was daunting, as all available versions of her images are copies of the originals. However, Hicks shared her story and a few of her photos with Time.com. The photos Shannon gave to Time in her exclusive interview contained lots of EXIF data, but what that data tells us only adds to the suspicion that her photos might have been staged. If we examine two of her most important evacuation images, we see that they're claimed to be taken on December 14, 2012. The metadata on one of these images says that it was taken at 12 a.m., and another says it was taken at 6.10 p.m. All of these time.com images have wildly different capture times. These times seem anomalous if this event were really taking place right in front of her camera. Looking into the metadata further, we find that these images have been manipulated in Adobe Photoshop CS5 for Macintosh on December 19th at 5.30 p.m. This fact alone invalidates the metadata timestamps as all metadata can be manipulated to the artist's liking using Adobe Photoshop CS5. Which brings us back to Shannon's slideshow on the Newtown B YouTube account. Perhaps by examining the metadata of this video, we can come up with a more accurate picture of when these images first went online. When looking into her video's metadata, something very shocking immediately stands out. Her video was created on December 13, 2012 at 5.44 p.m. Eastern Time. How could it be that this video was uploaded and encoded on December 13th if the photos within that video were supposedly taken the following morning? Similarly, Jean Vauquette, an associate editor at the Newtown Bee, captured a short clip of the purported chaos behind the firehouse, which he also uploaded to the Newtown Bee's YouTube account. Ambulances and paramedics are being dispatched in from as far away as Waterbury and the Waterbury region. We've got parents standing by. Uh, the uh, chairman of the school board, W. Lightline, is here. 
multiple school personnel, ambulance, and state police and others from uh, throughout the location, uh, throughout the region here at uh, Sandy Hook School for the still developing incident. We have no idea firmly uh, what's going on yet. Uh, we have SWAT uh, emergency services here from the state of Connecticut, uh, armed and uh, moving into the area. We have no other firm information, confirmation of injuries, victims, or any information uh, beyond that there was an incident that possibly involved a shooting and uh, that we are still standing by for uh, firm information or a press briefing. The metadata for this video also shows it was created on December 13th. This is very strong evidence that these images were taken before the event maybe in a drill or dress rehearsal situation, in preparation for the FEMA false flag terrorism event, better known as the Sandy Hook hoax. So jump for joy for Sandy Hook elementary janitor named Rick Thorne, who did a Paul Revere run through the hallways after spotting the gunman shouting, a gunman is coming, a gunman is coming. He checked to make sure the classroom doors were locked. I'm going to talk about Rick Thorne and some of the discrepancies found in relation to him and early statements that were made. And these early statements that were made are very important. They're what came out before any editing and auditing has been done. Where you can find the most truth is in the early footage, the early, when you compare to what we have information that's been given out almost two years later. When you go back and compare, it's almost insane. I got this photo from Sandy Hook hoax page from Tony. This is who Tony believes to be Rick Thorne. I found another picture myself attached to the name Rick Thorne. They look similar but not identical to each other. But we can't say for sure because, and this is the most suspicious thing about Rick Thorne, is that he has never, ever been interviewed. Town Police Dispatcher, Newt. Okay, I have that. We have officers on scene. Thank you. What's your name? Rick Thorne. Okay. I'm in the building. All right, Rick, I've got you. I'm on the other line. All right, Thank we have officers you. there. Thank you. Newtown 911, what's the location of your emergency? Hello? Are you talking to me? I am talking to you. Okay, is this Rick? 12 Dickinson Drive, Sandy Hook. Hi, Rick, is this you? Yes. Okay, we're back on the line together. Was that by, is that by PD? What was it's that? By the firehouse. It's by the firehouse. Yeah, we know. We got, I'm sorry. All right, Rick, you still with me? Yes. All right, what do you see now? 
I'm standing in the corridor, just watching the corridor. All right, you're watching your corridor? Yes. Okay. Next to Peter or Ryan Lanza, Rick Thorne would be the number one guy the media would go after for an interview. Here we have the Sandy Hook Elementary School Handbook for the year of 2010-2011. Rick Thorne's name is listed here, and this is a very huge piece of evidence. If Rick Thorne, someone might say they went back and added it, it's on their web page, and that probably could be done. But if they went to the trouble to add Rick Thorne's name, who should not have been employed at that time, we'll get to that here. He was still working in Massachusetts at that time. You know, if they went in to add Rick Thorne, why did they not correct Kevin Anzalotti's name? He's listed here as Antonali, head custodian, instead of Anzalotti. So the fact that they added him after the fact doesn't make sense either. My belief is this whole handbook was fudged and created. So we have a newsletter here dated August 28, 2012, and this lists Rick Thorne, Kevin Anzalotti, and a couple other names worked tirelessly to prepare our school for its opening day. So this is for the school year of 2012. Next, we'll get into this article dated November 19, 2012. Rick Thorne worked as a custodian in Kemsford, Massachusetts for 22 years, earning $20 an hour cleaning floors, cutting grass, setting up assemblies for the community. He's currently on retirement pension, getting $1,500 a month. And further in the article, it says Greenwood, whose wife has cancer, and Thorne still don't have new jobs 16 months later. So he was fired in June of 2011. In June of 2011, he was still working for Kemsfield school system. Why is he in the 2010-11 handbook? This does not make sense. And it says 16 months later, he still doesn't have a new job. This takes us to November of 2012, that he still doesn't have a job, according to this article. So why is he in Don's newsletter in August? None of this lines up. This is a comment from a thread on Godlike Productions, and it's a very well-written comment, so I'm going to share this about more discrepancies involving Thorne. The Rick Thorne call divided into four sections in the release 911 recordings is extremely problematic for the conventional Sandy Hook narrative. Burton and others have Thorne costing the gunmen before they even have time to call 911, yelling at him to stop shooting and put the gun down. Abby Clement states that when she entered the northwest hall of the school, Thorne had already run past her position towards the front lobby some 20-30 yards away. Thus, Clements has Thorne in the lobby only moments after the shooting began within the school. Yet, on the 911 call attributed to Thorne, he merely states, I believe there's a shooting at the front glass, something, I don't know what is going on. If Thorne had really run through the lobby to go eyeball to eyeball with a gunman and order him to drop his weapon, then purported content of this call makes absolutely no sense. I don't know, I keep hearing popping, are not the words of a man who had just gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with a mass murderer discharging a 223 Bushmaster inside a school. Also, how can one explain Thorne's omission of having seen the mangled bodies of Don Hotsprung and Mary Sherlock after passing them in the lobby while running through the biggest puddle of blood ever? As in almost 
always the case with recounts of Sandy Hook incident, it is difficult to determine who is the liar. If call one was placed by Barbara Halstead, then Cox, Roig, Day, and Halstead's daughter are liars. If this call from Thorne is legitimate, then Clemens, Burton, Penna, Day are liars. Who is the deceptive party here, Thorne or the others? Or are they all liars, effusicating participants in an event that is essentially a sham? Did this call attributed to Thorne even take place in real time? I don't know where the truth actually lies, but once again, the call attributed to Thorne is extremely problematic. And there's more. There's this next article. I have found a big discrepancy with what custodian Rick Thorne says. One of the dead staff in the hallway, either Don Hotchbrung or Mary Sherlock, was wearing versus what the official report says the principal slash psychologist wore. Rick said one of them was wearing an orange dress. Lastly, Thorne related that as he was being escorted out of the school, he observed two adult females lying in the hallway by the office. Thorne stated that they were near a bench and they both appeared shot. Moreover, Thorne stated that he did not recognize them, but he did notice that one of the females was wearing an orange dress. His testimony was taken December 14, 2012 at 12.51 hours, so it would have been fresh on his mind. Now notice, in the scene report, a detailed description of both Don and Mary are given their deceased state in the hallway. Guess what? Both are wearing jeans and not a dress. And here's the specifics. Mrs. Hotsprung had brown hair and was wearing a gray and red hooded sweater, red long sleeve shirt, blue jeans, and a calf-length brown colored boots. Miss Sherlock was wearing a blue long sleeve shirt, tan tank top shirt, blue jeans, blue socks with the brown colored shoes. There was a pair of eyeglasses on the floor east of her body. There was a blue colored material around her head that was possibly a headdress or large neck scarf. So who is lying? Anyone see a problem with this? Moving on. Those are all huge. I'm going to share this from the Town of Kemsford Annual Town Report Fiscal Year of 2011. School employee payroll has Thorne listed here with a salary of $50,640.37. So that was his yearly salary. I'm going to share this as well. This is a Spokio record connected to Kemsford Rick Thorne on Gorham Street. I did not find a specific number address for Gorham Street, but I snooped around a little bit. There's this weird article about bones found at 54 Gorham Street. I'm not going to share details of that right now, but I'll show that that address sold November 14, 2012 for $1. So that's a month prior to the events of Sandy Hook. There's another 38 Gorham Street that sold for a dollar listed here on December 28, 2012, so two weeks after the event. This clip here, this screenshot, shows three $1 houses listed on December 27, 2012. 46 Gorham, 42 Gorham, and 38 Gorham Street all sold 13 days after the events of Sandy Hook. And then another $1 sale on February 18, 2013 on that street. So like I said, I don't have specific address and I can't tie Thorne to any of those. I just thought it was interesting enough to share. 
this Glenn Beck article here talks about courage and inspiration in Newtown CT overcomes tragedy. This little clip from the Glenn Beck article says, One of the staff members at Sandy Hook took up a collection for Rick Thorne and his family and gave him a gift certificate he could use for books for his three daughters in college. Well, this throws me off of the trail that I was on because the person I thought to be the identity that I followed for Rick Thorne in records like Advanced Background, Intellius, to show who his family are and to try to find more on him would be a dead end if he has three daughters because the records that I found for the Kemsford Rick Thorne has one daughter and one son, both adults, daughter married. I'm not sure 100% what the correct trail is for Thorne because we have nothing on him. There's been nothing shared on him other than what the media has put out in the 911 calls. So thank you for your interest in Sandy Hook. Take care. The media may not have simply overlooked the discrepancies in the case of Sandy Hook. Outlets like CNN and others seemed to, in a few instances, fully participate in the deception. Take for instance a CNN piece from just a few days after the event. To quote from the article, Scuba was clipping hair on Friday at Robert Anthony's hair salon, the shop he, his mom, and sister have run for the last 13 years. Because this case was so devoid of fruitful leads for reporters to follow, it's not unexpected for them to resort to a war of sensationalism. In this example, the reporter, Wayne Drash, attempted to portray Adam Lanza as a deeply disturbed individual. Let's watch for a moment. The owner of the Robert Anthony Salon in Newtown says Adam Lanza was silent and never made eye contact when he'd come in with his mother for his regular haircut. I would always make jokes with him trying to talk to him and just make conversations with him his hair. He wouldn't say it worked. He, he wouldn't look down for the tile. He wouldn't look up. Even though Lanza was in his teens, Scuba says his mother appeared firmly in control. The only time that he would move or make any type of movement is when his mother told him to. That was it. And those were the only times. The man whose comments we were just treated to is Robert A. Scuba. The article refers to him 13 times as a barber, and his comments were about cutting the young Adam Lenz's hair. Scuba puts his hand on the black barber chair. That sick son of a... The barber shakes his head. The barber's sister would tell him there was something wrong with Lanza, that he wasn't right. So, I guess he's a barber somewhere in the Newtown area. The first problem with the story is, there's no business licensed as Robert Anthony's hair salon in the area. But a person by the name of Robert A. Scuba Sr. is listed as doing business as Design Crete USA. So that part of the story checks out. While we're at it, let's see if Bob Scuba is a licensed barber. Barbers are required to be licensed after all. It appears that no barber with the last name Scuba has been licensed in the state of Connecticut since at least 1997. That's odd. The article seemed to overemphasize that Bob was a barber. Let's try another tactic and see if Bob might actually be a hairdresser. We do get a listing for Robert Scuba. Let's see the details for that listing. It shows his license is inactive and expired on August 31st, 2008. But the article stated, Scuba was clipping hair on Friday at Robert Anthony's hair salon. 
How's that possible if Bob's license expired as far back as 2008? Let's check on the license for the salon itself. Checking under Design Crete USA, it's DBA, we get one result. Hmm, it says it's inactive. Well, what do you know, it expired on December 31st, 2012. So it was a licensed salon on the 19th when the reporter made his visit, but it never renewed its license when it expired just a few days later and almost two years ago. I don't know about the owner of the salon, whether it's still in operation or under what name it might currently be licensed, but I think it's a fair assumption to make that the comments made by Robert Scuba were strictly for effect only. Did he ever cut the hair of a person named Adam Lanza even once? I doubt it. I'll conclude this line of investigation with another quote from the CNN article. I wish I would have killed him then, he says, or he should have killed himself a long time ago. He would have saved us all the trouble. He should have run in front of a bus or some other type of terrible death. He should have done it to himself. It would have saved all those kids and parents the trouble. I should have slipped and stabbed him by accident. It would have been a lot better for those people. There is very little video footage from the day of the event. The video footage that we do see is chock full of anomalies. Based on these anomalies, many people have come to the conclusion that what we are seeing is evidence of a drill rather than that of a mass shooting. So let's take a look at a few examples so you could judge for yourself. Scanning the scene of the incident, we observed that Dickinson Drive, the road between the firehouse and Sandy Hook School, is completely blocked off. Trapped from going either forward or backward, the lone ambulance on Dickinson is practically useless. All other ambulances are parked at the firehouse, away from the crime scene, and are all facing the same direction. By 10.29 a.m., under an hour after the onset of the event, ambulances and even small quads were inaccessible as evidenced by 408's transmission, stating, I can't get the quad up here, the road's blocked too much. Gridlock was a major issue, and Marine Will, who just so happens to live directly across the street from the firehouse, was the Newtown Director of Emergency Communications, and was at the helm during the event. In a shocking admission, Miss Will admits Gridlock was an issue, stating that surrounding law enforcement agencies self-deployed, resulting in Gridlock on Riverside Road, forcing her to place another local fire station on standby because the trucks at Sandy Hook were completely blocked in. Gridlock can also be attributed to having the reunification point at the firehouse, just a few hundred feet away from the school, thus clogging the streets with any potential parents attempting to pick up their child. At the school, there is no evidence of a chaotic scene. There is a fire truck that was granted access, but curiously, there are no ambulances. Now note, it has been established through matching the highly questionable police report and the police and fire department scanner feeds with the aerial feed that we arrived at a time frame between 10.36 and 11 a.m. and that's for the helicopter footage that we see. Also take note that if we believe the official story 
Nurse Sally Cox and Secretary Barbara Halstead hid in a closet in the exact same area where the state police were conducting the investigation until 1.15 p.m. for approximately four hours. So why is this important? It's important because this proves that not everyone was accounted for at the time of the aerial footage. Yet we see blocked ambulances, gridlock, and zero sense of urgency. Emphasizing the lack of urgency even more, let's take a look at this police dash cam video. At 12.21 p.m., just under an hour prior to Sally Cox and Barbara Halstead coming out of the closet, no pun intended, of course, these officers decided it was a good idea to bust out the snacks, chips, bananas, and bottled water during a mass shooting investigation. Mind you, deceased innocent little first graders are allegedly just feet away from the vehicle, but somehow they were able to stomach and ingest food and beverages. These are the same officers who received millions of dollars in compensation from the federal government for healing. For instance, August 28, 2013, the Washington Times reported that the federal government would send $2.5 million in taxpayer money to Connecticut police agencies to help the community heal. On June 17, 2014, the Obama administration dished out another $7.1 million to Newtown's first responders, victims' families, and law enforcement. The obvious question here is why would law enforcement need extra enormous sums of money for simply doing their job? But even more bizarre is the fact that these officers were able to take a break in the action while some people were yet to be accounted for. Many people have wondered if gridlock was deliberately done to prevent certain EMTs who weren't in the know from going into the school. After all, it wasn't until 10 a.m. when a meeting occurred between Sergeant Cario and Danbury Director of Emergency Medical Services Matthew Casavecchia took place. Up until this point, nobody except for certain members of law enforcement were allowed inside. In the end, not one EMT outside of any law enforcement agents who may or may not have assessed any alleged victims was allowed in until it was too late. Matthew Casavecchia and his two accomplices were brought in after the fact. And other EMTs, such as 44-year-old EMT James Wolfe, gave helpless statements, saying, quote, It was difficult to see, and especially because we weren't in action doing things trying to save people. You may not be able to save everybody, but you damn well try. And when we didn't have the opportunity to put our skills into action, it's difficult, unquote. And Sophia Smallstorm, in her memorable presentation on Sandy Hook, outlined how ludicrous it was to not have attempted all measures in rescuing children from the school. While we did see start tarps on the day of Sandy Hook, they were empty. The white mounds you see in these pictures are actually emergency gear. Ambulance crews learned that no bodies were coming out. They would be kept in the building to which only the police had access. Ambulances were made to wait down the street at the firehouse. This is what was posted on an internet forum about the emergency response at Sandy Hook. I'm going to read it to you. The main sticking point is the EMS services did not behave within their normal scope. 
A mass shooting would have had trauma helicopters flying children out one after another, performing CPR the entire way to the hospital, and patients would be declared dead at the hospital after extensive measures were taken to try to save lives. I've been in the ER for five years, and we get all code blue patients. We get 80-year-old nursing home patients that have not been breathing for 20 minutes with no chance of survival. And we perform CPR and necessary medical intervention with the chance that patients may regain a pulse. On that, on that horrible day on Friday, you guys were assigned to a triage area, and, and, and it, it didn't unfortunately end up being used. That, that must have been a just a sickening feeling to, to, to be there at this triage unit and then realize there's not people coming in. At, at the time, a few times during the incident, I actually thought to myself, um, should I be hoping that this area was filled with injured people? Despite the fact that there was acknowledgement of gridlock, blocked ambulances, and perhaps evidence of negligence, at the time of this production, there is yet to be even a single lawsuit made by the parents of the alleged victims. Now, there are plenty of reasons why people think Sandy Hook was a drill gone live. Remember the footage of the parents walking aimlessly at the firehouse? All right, this is, it gets really interesting in a minute. And you're going to see, without a doubt, how the people are recycling back into the building. All right, now the helicopter's pulling out. See the line of people there? See the line of people? All right, we're coming up to the front. Look how they're coming back in. They're taking that turn, watch them take the turn, up, and they're coming right back into the building. <laughs> now, skeptics erroneously have attempted to denounce this evidence as manufactured and looped by YouTubers. Yet, as we can see, before the helicopter video pans out, the people are just filing right back into the firehouse. Yes, arrows were given out by various YouTubers to show the characters looping around, and yes, songs were attributed to the edited versions of the videos to clearly show how ludicrous it all is. And yes, the video is played forward and backward right before it pans out to show clearly where the people are headed. But this tape, quite clearly, is not looped. And we can clearly see people walking in circles. When we focus on individual people in the video, we see the same anomalous behavior. The kid in the yellow Under Armour shirt is the best example of this. Throughout the time he is observed, he just walks aimlessly around, in circles. He does this until a lady walks up to him and ushers him away. Now did this lady notice that he was a little too blatant in his attempt at creating a chaotic scene? Now take a look at the man in the gray sweatshirt. His name is Joseph Wasik, and his daughter Alexis gave several interviews to the media throughout the day. He enters the video at around 50 seconds in when he exits the firehouse door and then walks around. He is seen again going back inside the firehouse at about 4 minutes and 10 seconds into the video and then at the end of the video he is seen exiting the building once again at around 10.21 into the video. If you pay close attention to the individual people in the footage you will notice the same awkward behavior of walking in and out of the firehouse doors of course without a child. And to clear up any confusion you may have about the dash cam videos and the lack of evidence of a mass evacuation, let's take a look at the police report. In report number 0056732, the John McGeever dash cam timeline, 
it states that, quote, the following is a timeline of pertinent events that were captured by the video recorder and observed and recorded by me while watching this DVD, signed by Allison Peters. It is a video of a forward-facing view from the cruiser of the school parking lot and captures the northeast corner of the building. Now, the northeast corner of the building just so happens to be where the majority of the alleged evacuations took place. Remember, the officer claims to have watched the video and observed the mass evacuation, yet we never see it in the video. These are blatant lies. The issue with Sandy Hook is the abundance of redactions and the total lack of visual and video evidence pointing to a real mass shooting. We are told many tales of what happened, but how can we trust the Connecticut State Police when they have been proven to be liars? We are told that 25 of the bodies weren't even worth rushing to a hospital. We are told that only three EMTs were allowed access into the school to assess the dozens of bodies located inside. Everybody else was ordered to stand off. We are told that these bodies were left to rot in the school all day long. We are told by Peter Lanza of all people, via the New Yorker, that his son could barely tie his own shoe at the age of 17. Yet this uncoordinated, mentally challenged kid was able to accomplish the unthinkable within just minutes. The police report states that Lanza, after he was done with his rampage, piled dead bodies in a bathroom. Before this, the police report states that he aimed his gun at each person before he shot them, not saying anything, but meticulously pointing. He was able to do this and fire off 150 rounds within just minutes, killing 26 people. Is it any wonder that people question the official story? Hello to everybody out there. My name on YouTube is Professor Doom, and I want to take a moment right now to thank you all who have shown and expressed interest in this subject, that one of the biggest hoaxes that have ever been perpetrated on the American public, and that is the events that took place December 14, 2012, at Sandy Hook, Connecticut. I wish to thank uh, those who've asked me to... Uh, participate in the collaboration of this video and for those of you who have seen my videos on this particular subject I will be covering a few of the findings that I have discovered and I have presented in previous videos but I represent here in this collaboration for you all and I will get to that here right now for you I'd like to share with you here a little bit of my background so you can understand why I took on the project of making videos regarding the Sandy Hook hoax. And you'll get a better understanding of what experience I've had in the matters of studying police documents and police reports. I took a paralegal course and have written many briefs. I have written federal lawsuits state tort actions, one amicus curiae, and for those of you who do not know what an amicus curiae is, it is a friend of the court brief, 
I have also done several petition for habeas corpus motions. With my experience in uh, studying police reports in writing up some of my habeas corpus petitions, that's what got me interested in the Sandy Hook documents that were provided for uh, researchers and people who were just expressing interest in the subject of the Sandy Hook event. So let me get on now with my very first document here that I want to show you. This document here is from the Connecticut State Police. And you will be able to see here in their reports, and a lot of these reports were just from the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and the Connecticut State Police was reporting what the FBI had reported to them. And in this report here, it goes on to state thus, The shooter schooling began at Sandy Hook Elementary School and moved on to Newtown Middle School for 5th and 7th grades. Around 7th grade, the shooter moved to St. Mary's School and then moved to Newtown High School, where he completed ninth grade. Okay, so I'm going to stop there on this document, and I want you to take notice that nowhere in this document does it ever mention anything about the school St. Rose of Lima. And as you can see here, that they make it quite clear that Adam Lanza, the shooter, had attended Sandy Hook Elementary School. We can see in this document here, this is an official police document that was uh, provided for uh, researchers. And they go on to state here that on March 6, 2013, this detective met with four individuals who had worked or who has uh, or have worked at Sandy Hook School for an extensive period of time. Furthermore, they worked at the school when the shooter attended. Through the memory of the aforementioned, yearbooks and a Sandy Hook school map were able to obtain which classrooms the shooter was in while he attended Sandy Hook School. With those two documents alone, you would get the sense that Adam Lanza did, in fact, attend Sandy Hook Elementary School. Yet, there appears to be conflicting documents with the two documents that I just presented to you right there. And in the first document that differs from that account is this one right here. This document here was written up by Rachel Van S. after they requested permission from Adam Lanza's father, Peter Lanza, to obtain all school records for Adam Lanza from Newtown, Connecticut. And the only school that is mentioned here or in any other documents where records were to be obtained and the only school listed is St. Rose of Lima School and it states here number 355 St. Rose of Lima School records pertaining to Adam Lanza didn't we just see in the very first document that I presented that the only schools that were mentioned were Sandy Hook, Newtown Middle, St. Mary's and the high school there is no mention in that document at all that Adam Lanza ever attended St. Rose of Lima School. So why is it that they are making the claim that he attended Sandy Hook when this document and Peter Lanza refute that claim? And they are specifically requesting school attendance records for St. Rose of Lima only and no other school at all. Now I want to show you the next document. And I want to remind you, I've poured through every document that they presented for researchers. 
and there was, and we're talking over over a thousand of these documents. And the only document that reports a an official request by subpoena for the school records of Adam Lanza was made to St. Rose of Lima. St. Rose of Lima school records subpoena served. On 1-2-2013, I served Principal Mary Rose Maloney with a subpoena for Adam Lanza school records. And they claimed that they did, in fact, receive the school records. How come, in none of these documents, is there any request by subpoena for the school records of Adam Lanza from Sandy Hook Elementary, from Newtown Middle School, or from any other school for that matter? Only this one. And that seems to be in complete contradiction to the documents stating by the Connecticut State Police and the Federal Bureau of Investigation that Adam Lanza attended Sandy Hook Elementary School. Most of you watching this are aware that the purported shooter, Adam Lanza, had an older brother, Ryan Lanza. Ryan was reported to be employed by the accounting firm Ernst & Young at the time of the Sandy Hook incident. I touched on Ryan earlier, just briefly, but it's worth learning a bit more about him as it relates to another anomaly. To begin with, the initial reports of the Sandy Hook event cited anonymous sources as claiming the perpetrator was one Ryan Lanza. The gunman was identified at 11:28 as again 24-year-old Ryan Lanza of New Jersey. They're also going to locations associated with the shooter, not just directly associated with Ryan Lanza, his residence, and 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 they're looking for a location in New Jersey. There, cops have identified the shooter as a 24-year-old man, Ryan Lanza. We have just now confirmed apparently the shooter is identified. He is 20-year-old Ryan Lanza. The shooter, it is Ryan Lanza. Ryan Lanza is the shooter. The shooter has been identified to me by a source as Ryan Lanza. Ryan Lanza. A short time later, the media accounted for this discrepancy by claiming the ID was made by identifying documents on the deceased shooter. Apparently, Adam was carrying Ryan's driver's license for some unexplained reason. Some accounts claim it was Ryan himself that suggested Adam might have his ID. Others who were following the story in those first few days remember reading about Ryan's reaction to being identified as the shooter. The following posts were made to his Facebook account. Everyone shut the fuck up. It wasn't me. I'm on the bus home now. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. I was at work. It wasn't me. Fuck you, CNN. It wasn't me. These reactions are not unusual considering the unlucky situation Ryan appeared to have been in. Not to mention that, following the media's false report, Ryan reportedly received a number of death threats through social media. Ryan was reportedly living with either his girlfriend or a roommate in Hoboken, New Jersey, while Adam reportedly lived with his mother, Nancy. Ryan reportedly stated he hadn't seen or spoken to his younger brother in about three years at the time of the event. Later, on the day of the supposed shooting, Ryan was taken into custody for what they claimed was his own protection. I can't locate anywhere in the official report details of an interview between Ryan and law enforcement officials. However, there are Hoboken police and FBI records that contain some details of the arrest of Ryan and a very detailed interview from the day of the event, but the name of who's being interviewed is redacted. Still, 
because the details given are so specific and appeared to come from someone with intimate knowledge of the Lanza family, it's a fair assumption that the person being interviewed is Ryan. Another document refers to one of the interviewees on that day having an alibi. Someone that morning had made a purchase at a Dunkin' Donuts using their credit card, which from their use of the word alibi seems to have satisfied investigators that they were not directly involved in the shooting. It's worth noting that there were other unusual reports in those first few days, including that he lived with his father, Peter Lanza, that his girlfriend and a friend were missing, and that his father was found dead in his home, but not his home in Stamford, a home in Hoboken. Outside of the initial blitz of Facebook posts and the media's reporting of Ryan in those first few days, nothing else about Ryan has been reported. Sure, there have been blogs posting questions like, what happened to Ryan? Or is Ryan still in custody? But nothing has been reported about Ryan's current status. Does he still work for Ernst & Young? Does he still live in Hoboken? Has anyone seen or heard from him in recent months? Even more unusual is that Ryan himself hasn't emerged to give a statement. Even if Ryan were concerned about what line of questioning he might face if he were to present himself to the media, he could have simply issued a statement or arranged for an interview under tightly controlled conditions. The bizarre mix of reports, statements, and details pertaining to Ryan and Adam are too numerous to cover in depth in this report. But, just working with the elements I've presented, I'm sure you would have difficulty trying to piece together a storyline that could account for most of the details and false reports. There appears to be some kind of deception going on here, but exactly what that is, I can't speculate. Which brings me to one of the more interesting theories having emerged in the ensuing months that attempts to account for at least some of these anomalies. It is being speculated by some that the persons being reported as Adam and Ryan Lanza are actually the same person. Having researched this case since the day of the event, I admit that I cannot refute the theory and remain open to it. Most who posit the theory speculate that Ryan was once named Adam and changed his name sometime around 2009. Still, others simply theorize that Adam never existed at all, a theory that, if true, would pose a real problem for authorities involved in the case. This, the last of my three segments, though, is about a strange event that occurred in late December of 2012 relating to Ryan. Sometime soon after the shooting event on the 14th, a Facebook account was created that purported to be that of Ryan Lanza. Subsequent to that, a reporter from the New York Post contacted the account holder, which somehow led to what the New York Post reported as a Facebook interview. The Post wasted no time in running with the story and reported some of what was said by Ryan. I am a victim. I lost my mom and brother. I will miss you, bro. I will always love you as long as I live. They reported that Ryan posted a picture of Adam with the following message, Rest in peace, Adam Peter Lanza. The problem with all of this is that it was a complete hoax. Ryan had reportedly shut down his Facebook account almost immediately after the event. Countless Facebook and other social media pages were then created by persons other than Ryan. Just days after the post ran their story, they were contacted by Errol Cockfield of the public relations firm Edelman, which happens to be the world's largest public relations firm. Acting as a spokesperson for the Lanza family, he issued a statement on their behalf that chalked the whole thing up to the unfortunate result of a poor editorial process. 
boy, that's putting it mildly. Thanks to the New York Post, other publications picked up their story, including Huffington Post, the UK Telegraph, TMZ, and others. They must have assumed, as many would, that editors at the Post had verified the reporter's story, especially in light of the hair-trigger reporting that had plagued the story just days earlier. What bothered some wasn't the fact that the Post screwed up and ran with a totally illegitimate story. It was the way in which they handled the recovery from their blunder. First, rather than retract the story and remove it from their website, they chose instead to simply update the story. In other words, they kept the full text of the totally fabricated story and simply noted that it was a hoax, to which, when read, would prompt the reader to ask, why the hell am I reading this? The story remains plastered throughout the Internet, linking back to the Post story as any reputable news outlet would. Next, the Post couldn't resist making a last-ditch effort to deflect the blame onto those who would shamelessly reprint their story. In the Metro section, they ran a brief update they called Twisted Fake on Facebook. The last sentence reads, The bogus posts and instant message chats were reported by news outlets, including the Post, which implies they were no more responsible than any of their syndication partners. Someone needs to inform the author, Chuck Bennett, that the Post doesn't just reprint the work of others. Sometimes they break real scoops, even if it is all make-believe. If that all wasn't weird enough, there's the matter of the public relations firm that issued the statement denying that Ryan had any communication with the Post. As I mentioned, the firm Edelman was somehow retained by the Lanza family to handle this issue and potentially others. They are the largest PR firm, and their niche is big business, not representing two guys looking to maintain their privacy. Representing Edelman on behalf of the Lanzas is Errol Cockfield. Errol is an interesting character. He doesn't strike me as being the company's top agent, but he certainly has his share of sticky situations under his belt. The, the woman that was uh, mentioned in the Post piece uh, today, um, when asked by a reporter from the Post, um, this $1,000 payment, uh, did you work for, at any time did you work for Patterson? She said, no, I hardly know him. Um, and yet there's a $1,000 payment to her. H how do you reconcile that? Well, I think, I think this has been a very emotional time for some of the folks involved in these inquiries. And as I mentioned before, there's been an effort to sort of reconstruct history. You may not remember where you were in, in 2002, every, every period for the year 2002 or 2003. He was press secretary to New York governors Elliot Spitzer and David Patterson during periods of scandal for both. He was chief of staff to the New York State Democratic Conference and was press secretary for the Empire State Development Corporation, New York's primary economic development agency. Before his stints in government and PR, he was a reporter for 12 years and actually worked at the Hartford Current. Let's wrap up this tangled mess with a brief quote from a blog called The Crisis Buzz, which featured Cockfield as a speaker at an event in 2013. Errol Cockfield is a vice president at Edelman, a global public relations firm, where he advises corporations on crisis and issues management. Cockfield specializes in developing strategic communications plans to mitigate risk as well as proactive messaging to strengthen reputations. Assuming that Edelman has no need to service individuals like the Lanzas, I wonder which corporation Cockfield is advising behind the scenes.
What is the value of a human being, of a child, of a victim of tragedy? What makes the value of one person worth more than the value of another? When is enough enough? Sandy Hook families have been compensated millions of dollars by the government. They have raised millions themselves through private charities and fundraisers. Others have donated tens of thousands of dollars, and yet, almost two years after the event, they are still asking for more. And they continue to receive more as well. What is it that makes them so different as to have become instant millionaires? If this event was real, do you think it is morally right to use the death of a family member in order to solicit annual goals of tens of thousands of dollars? Some families are even documented as having an annual goal of upwards of $500,000, and that's not counting government grants that they were awarded. Deaths occur every day in the United States. And just about every one of those families must deal with tragedy on their own, struggling to make ends meet. But we know Sandy Hook is different, much different. After seeing all of the anomalies, inconsistencies, and lies surrounding the official story, one can't help but think that all the charities, funds, federal grants, and donations are just part of a gigantic payoff scheme. Take a look for yourself at the millions of dollars flowing into Newtown and then make up your own mind as to what you think is going on. The president revealed his $500 million gun control plan in early 2013. He used Sandy Hook as his justification. Now is the time was the motto. Background checks, the banning of high-capacity magazines and assault weapons, increased school security, and increased mental health services were the stated goals. 
the parents of the alleged victims walked hand in hand with this plan using the exact same language as outlined in the proposal. Now is the time to Following act. the signing of the New York SAFE Act, the Firearm Safety Act, and the Connecticut Gun Control Bill, Connecticut, Maryland, and New York were the first three states to become affected by the plan, causing an outcry among citizens. In Connecticut, one man voiced his opinion louder than most. I'm not here to cite crime statistics lives saved with a gun or the economic impact of the proposed asinine legislation, some of these gun control bills you have proposed. I will, however, read from the Connecticut State Constitution. Section 15 reads very clearly, we all know what the Second Amendment says, that Section 15 in the State Constitution says very clearly, every citizen has a right to bear arms in defense of himself and the state. There's no registration, there's no permitting, there's no background checks. It's quite clear. While most people are aware of the correlation between Sandy Hook and gun control, many are incognizant of the mental health connection. Enter Adam Lanza, who according to the state police report had no clear motive for the alleged shooting spree. In an effort to fill an obvious void of intention, blame was placed on Lanza's claimed mental illness, despite the fact that no mental health records had been made public. A fact that didn't stop the media, politicians, Sandy Hook parents, and the pharmaceutical industry from lobbying for and passing expensive mental health legislation. Confirmation on Lanza's mental health history is blurry at best. Lanza's stated primary psychiatrist, Dr. Paul Fox, was forced to surrender his license in July of 2012, after his place of employment became aware of ethics violations. He was discovered having sexual relations with clients while prescribing them with mind-altering drugs. After being highly dosed by Dr. Fox, one mother described her daughter as a walking zombie. Seems like a reliable source of information, doesn't he? Shortly after being fired, Dr. Fox fled the country to New Zealand. He gave his official statement on the Sandy Hook investigation to the Connecticut State Police over the phone on December 17, 2012. A summary was given by the police explaining, quote, all of his medical records pertaining to clients he treated in the United States are currently in storage in the United States. Just one day later, Fox renounced his statement as he explained to police, quote, any medical records pertaining to Adam Lanza have been destroyed since it has been over five years the five-year statute excuse that Dr. Fox used is false. The MedWatch organization Abelchild found fault with this claim statute as they discovered, quote, according to the regulations of Connecticut State Agency's medical records 19A-14-42, unless specified otherwise herein, all parts of a medical record shall be retained for a period of seven years from the last date of treatment. Questions surrounding Lanza's mental health are endless, not to mention his entire existence. So what do we actually know about Adam Lanza? Perhaps digging into his past life can lead to some sort of justification for the millions of dollars spent on mental health as a result of the event. But it seems as if his entire existence is shrouded in mystery. After 2009, there is very little trace of him at all. The younger pictures of the boy portrayed as Adam Lanza are of a joyful, smiling child, while the recent images issued out by the media are psychotic looking. The grainy, googly-eyed photos that we see appear to be altered to 
create the illusion of a deranged psychopath. There are unnatural straight edge lines on the neck area. There are blurred out areas near the mouth and the googly-eyed effect is, well, a nice attempt at creating a mentally disturbed kid. Peter and Nancy divorced in 2009. At this time, Adam disappears from the radar and his brother Ryan appears, causing many people to believe that Adam and Ryan are one and the same. Now we can't say with any certainty that this is the case. Nonetheless, the media was careless at times and outright deceitful in their attempt to get an accurate portrayal of Adam. One example comes from the Joshua Flashman interview. Attempting to give motive to the shooting, Fox News reached out to Flashman, a native of Sandy Hook, Monroe area, an aspiring actor and who supposedly had inside information regarding the Lanzas. He was quoted by Fox News falsely stating that Nancy Lanza was a kindergarten teacher and that she loved the kids more than she loved him and that she was planning on having him committed. A nice attempt at creating motive. Shortly after the article was published, Flashman took to the comments section and his Twitter page to dispute how Fox portrayed him as an insider. He states the following, I told the reporter about what was being said in the town, nothing more, nothing less. I told the reporter what the people in town were saying about Adam Lanza's motive, and next thing I know, I'm intimately acquainted with the Lanza family and knew Adam's motives firsthand. Funny, I didn't know that. Fox approached me and spent two days trying to convince me to go on the record, but I just wanted to get on TV, right? Yes, this is how the media operated during the onset of the Sandy Hook event. If there wasn't a clear motive, make it up. If someone spoke out on a subject, twist his or her words to create motive. Instead of reaching out to a second or third hand source, one would think the media would go right to the source, Adam's father. Adam's father, Peter, has never given an on-camera interview. His only public testimony comes via the New Yorker in an article entitled The Reckoning by Andrew Solomon. Allegedly, it was Peter who reached out to Solomon, saying that he was finally ready for an interview. So why Andrew Solomon of all people? One would think that every news agency in the land would be foaming at the mouth to get the blockbuster interview from the killer's father. The seemingly obvious answer of why Solomon was chosen comes from his background. Andrew Solomon's father, Howard Solomon, was the CEO for the pharmaceutical giant Forest Laboratories, which produces the drug Lexapro. Coincidentally, according to Solomon's article, Lexapro was the drug prescribed by Dr. Fox to Adam. The article states that Adam discontinued use of this drug, thus giving the illusion that if only he kept up his dosage, the entire Sandy Hook event would have never happened. Now keep in mind, the police report contradicts Solomon's article, as it doesn't mention Lexapro as the drug prescribed to Lanza. Instead, it mentions Celexa. Now shockingly, Celexa is the drug that turns Solomon's forest laboratories into a giant. Let's quickly take a look at the police report to cover the specifics. Kathleen Koenig, the nurse specialist working alongside Dr. Paul Fox, gave her testimony to the police. She stated that Celexa was the drug prescribed to Lanza and that Nancy Lanza was, quote, non-compliant, unquote, 
and giving Adam the prescribed dosage. According to the police report, Koenig attempted to convince her that Celexa was not causing any adverse reactions Adam may be experiencing. And according to Solomon, Koenig was worried about Adam Lanza never taking psychotropics again. Ironically, Andrew Solomon, the man telling the story of Adam through Peter, grew up mentally ill. For years he battled depression, going to extremely bizarre measures as to even travel to foreign lands and try shamanistic tribal blood rituals to cure his illness. To quote Solomon, So I sat there, naked and completely covered in animal blood, with flies gathering, as they will when you're naked and covered in animal blood, and I drank a coke. Growing up, Solomon was surrounded by psychotropic drugs. According to his story, he eventually found a way to cure his depression through an undisclosed cocktail of pharmaceuticals. Now, while promoting the drug Celexa, his father would use him as the poster boy of how pharmaceuticals could change one's life. So here we have the Adam Lanza story of a mentally disturbed kid, discontinuing his use of psychotropics, ultimately leading to a mass shooting event. And then we have, on the other side, Andrew Solomon's story of where psychotropics cured a lifelong battle of depression. Is there anybody out there that does not see a clear angle here? Oh, and I forgot to mention that Andrew Solomon is a member of the elitist Council on Foreign Relations, the most influential think tank in the U.S. Even more bizarre is the fact that all of Adam Lanza's alleged psychiatrists were from the Yale Child Study Center, and Dr. Ezra Griffith, a psychiatrist from Yale University, was appointed by Governor Malloy to sit on the Sandy Hook Advisory Commission to recommend mental health care in the state. Now, Yale's Child Study Center even testified before the commission. Talk about a major conflict of interest. Mental health, just like any other illness, is a serious problem. There are proper ways to handle it. Pushing pills, psychotropics, and pharmaceuticals in a society that is already overly vaccinated is not one of them. Especially not from a large pharmaceutical corporation like Forest Laboratories, who has several multi-million dollar lawsuits against them, one of which is for deceptively and unlawfully marketing the adolescent depression drugs Lexapro and Celexa by using misleading drug labels and paying people to endorse them. And it goes without saying that using a fabricated event to push for certain agendas is about as morally unjust as you can get. The preceding documentary was just the tip of the iceberg on the avenue that is Sandy Hook. As one delves deep into the endless intersections and rabbit holes of research, one can't help but see a single constant theme. That is the overwhelmingly consistent approach by the authorities to conceal and redact any critical information that might prove or disprove this event. Is it too much to ask for the Connecticut State Police to release the mass evacuation video that they claim to have on their dash cams? Evidence that shouldn't be harmful or disrespectful to anybody. As we have seen, the police dash cam timeline does not match what is alleged to have occurred. With this knowledge, we can only conclude that the Connecticut State Police have lied. Or what about information regarding Adam Lanza? As the alleged killer 
Any release of Lanza's information should not be disrespectful or traumatizing. So where is Lanza's driver's license in the crime scene photos? Why was he allegedly carrying his brother's ID? And why don't we see a copy of that in the photos? If the Ryan Lanza ID story was fabricated, then why was he brought into custody miles away from the crime scene in New Jersey? There are endless questions that need to be answered. We're not going so far as to ask for potentially gruesome pictures of deceased bodies or pools of blood consistent with a mass shooting, but because the Connecticut State Police has redacted much less traumatizing information, one can't help but ask, do these photos even exist? Bulldozing the school to the ground instead of making renovations and a $50 million destruction and rebuilding project in which Consigli Construction was required to sign a gag order only adds even more fuel to the fire. Was the demolition done to conceal the truth of what happened that day? Whatever the case is, merely gathering, collecting, and knowing all of the anomalies, inconsistencies, and lies within the Sandy Hook narrative does us no good until some sort of action takes place, a type of action that may convict possible conspirators. This is where you step in. Independent Media Solidarity is the name we chose to represent our loose-knit group because of our shared interests. One of those interests is the purported shooting that took place in Sandy Hook, Connecticut. As individuals, we have proposed unique solutions and strategies to resolve this problem. And by resolving the problem, we mean to achieve full disclosure of what took place on that day and of related matters. Full disclosure is the goal. We are confident that what is disclosed will be shocking and of the utmost concern to most Americans. From the antisocial teenager rebelling against their parents, to the middle-aged, five-time juror and veteran of the Gulf War who has a strong sense of patriotism, the stark reality of what their government is capable of will likely cause an unprecedented interest in preventing these things from happening again. And through that shared interest, a national conversation and debate over the issues, we believe a solution will be found. However, there is no one-size-fits-all strategy of achieving that disclosure that would satisfy us all. Thankfully, we all share the common goal of disclosure to build upon. The consensus amongst the group is that the Sandy Hook event is largely or entirely fraudulent. To what degree is not certain. The extent of the criminality and how far it reaches into other areas is likewise not certain. However, the group is equally or even more concerned about the greater implications, the ripple effect. You may have seen for yourself how this totally repugnant act has already taken its toll on our society. It's nothing less than ongoing terrorism, but it's a scam, and one that not all of our neighbors can see as clearly as we do. Does it really matter whether the purpose was to usher in gun control measures, or to gain more stringent control over us by widening the net of mental health diagnosis, or to demoralize us so we accept even more unaccountability of government? We think you'll agree that any degree of fraud committed for any purpose is not good for our nation and our world. If you agree, then please help us do what has to be done to achieve the disclosure we seek. But before I explain exactly how you can help, I want to briefly attempt to answer any remaining objections. We don't intend at this point to change the minds of those who accept the official account as legitimate and truthful. 
Neither do we want to fall into the trap of debating the legitimacy of the event, when not having access to the information puts us all at a disadvantage. The point of the presentation you just watched is to sufficiently arm you with the information available and what was found in our investigation, information that led us to overwhelmingly conclude that the official account is not trustworthy. Some people object to any solution that involves challenging government authority. Even though they may strongly suspect that crimes have occurred, they doubt that the people have the right to accuse their public officials. Or they may simply think that no mechanism exists to force officials to turn over anything that hasn't already been turned over. To these people, we first caution them that it's not uncommon for people to harbor misplaced respect for authority that was never earned in the first place. We've all heard the point being made that politicians lie, and there is exponential growth in examples of public officials shirking their responsibilities and committing crimes ranging from embezzlement to treason. The result of countless debates and determinations throughout history is a general consensus that governments should only be granted as much authority as they were deserving of. Not all people, even those very suspicious of the Sandy Hook event, think it warrants an organized response. Some argue that, given all the conflicts and crises taking place here and elsewhere, their time would be better spent in efforts to resolve other problems. Or they doubt that anything that could be achieved would benefit them in any direct way. So it's a value proposition where they don't see much value. To these people, we suggest they consider this. Think of this as a crime of conspiracy and consider the possibility that the conspirators could be convicted, effectively preventing their ability to commit further crimes. It's very hard to gauge, but still very likely, that other crimes yet to be connected in any way to the Sandy Hook conspirators have taken place or will take place. Convicting them in this case would likely prevent these future unrelated crimes as well. Lastly, we ask that you not disregard the impact on our society's thinking that could come from exposing this fraud. We don't think it's unreasonable to expect other suspicious events would come under similar scrutiny. How much would you value living in a world where massive institutional fraud had been exposed and would be much more difficult to attempt ever again? Our final point that we hope will answer any objections to joining your neighbors and taking action to resolve this problem is this. Can you sense that something is amiss in your country? And other countries as well. Maybe you sense something far worse is going on, but can't quite pinpoint what it is. We think that whatever the overarching problem that plagues us is, part of that problem is simply secrecy. We lack the information in both national and global affairs to make informed decisions or to simply protect ourselves from harm or misfortune. The appropriate rallying cry might be to wake up and smell the coffee. The media is a powerful but deceptive force that impacts your life. Whether you've been observing this all along or just catching wind of it, the general attitude we have of the press is growing increasingly negative, and the corporate and government-sponsored media outlets 
rather than respond to the people's interests, are shockingly making matters worse with more content deemed propaganda and refusing to fulfill our request to inform us. Getting back to that sense that something isn't right, picture that reality as a trajectory, a direction we're going in, and we're staying fixed in that direction like we're riding on a rail, no doubt laid by the powerful forces or institutions that have chosen a destination for us of their choosing. And you can imagine the momentum we as a total society have collectively, especially because so many of us are taking a nap in the back seat and aren't able to help slow our speed or steer us in a direction that better serves us. One way or another, this train has to be stopped or derailed. And if it so happens that secrecy is their greatest means to committing crimes and deceiving us, shouldn't we strive to put an end to this secrecy? To do this means we have to start somewhere. And we believe the place to start is Sandy Hook. Well, out of the sadness in Newtown, Connecticut, we are learning today an incredible story. This man lives near Sandy Hook Elementary School, and he's speaking out about his experience of coming home and finding six small children sitting in a semicircle on his lawn. He had heard the gunfire on his way back from breakfast at a local diner, and he thought it was a hunter. And then he saw these children just sitting on his front lawn. He started to talk to them, gave them juice and toys, and they recounted what had happened. Listen to this. And then over the next 30 minutes, they just described what happened, little by little. And these two boys kept saying, we can't go back to school. We can't go back to school. Our teacher's dead. Mrs. Soto, we don't have a teacher. And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't take that in. I had no idea what had happened. So, so sad. And um, listening to his story, and, you know, he said at first he saw them on the lawn. He thought that they were putting on a play or something. He was trying to understand what they could possibly be doing on his front lawn. And uh, we all know how children feel about their teacher. Uh, it's like the most important person in their life outside their family. So uh, your heart just breaks listening to that story. And we know that school has begun again for other children uh, in Sandy Hook, uh, but not the children who go to that elementary school. So we continue to bring you their stories throughout the week. You know, so the, the chat room, by the way, is saying that the, uh, the girl uh, was not from Soto's classroom. That she was from a different classroom. Like we know anything. This is just, we don't know no, anything. That can't be. Here's, here's the problem with that. That's again an accounting problem. If she was in a classroom, cause it said very clearly in that clip that Soda. she was the only survivor yes. of that classroom of 16. Yeah, you're right. That you're right. makes 15 right. dead kids in that classroom plus all the kids in the Soto classroom. Then we're way over 20. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So, did you see the medical examiner? This is the one. This is the one because I was like, oh, "Okay, I'm, I'm done." You know, I've already told you we haven't seen it, so who knows what happened? But then I saw this medical examiner. Did you see this guy? No. Okay. Oh yeah, no the the big guy, the big the old guy with the, the mustache, oaf? or whatever, funny looking guy. Yeah, the oaf. He's like, I mean, if, if ever, I'm just gonna say, if ever, you know, there's a guy who looks like a pedo bear. I mean, this guy is it. He's frightening. Who apparently has been doing this for uh, over 30 years. And uh, just I pulled a couple of clips, and and there's a great uh, um, montage of all of the. Actually, I have the full um, press conference in the show notes at four seven two dot na show notes dot com, 
And I just want you to, you know, first of all, so we see a, a big, oafy-looking guy who is, you know, has Tourette's for all intents and purposes. Believe me, I can recognize it. He's wearing oh, a... Oh, he does. I didn't notice this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then he's wearing a white lab coat, which, of course, gives him instant credibility as a, a medical examiner. I, I, I often wear one. Yeah. <laughs> Around the house. And But the questions he's asked and the answers he gives are so uncharacteristic of anyone who has done this for 30 years, and he is the medical examiner of Connecticut, okay? He's not just you know some douchebag from Sandy Hook. He's from Connecticut. I'm going to play this a little bit of out of order, but um, as you know, the parents were never allowed to see the kids. Uh, and I don't even know if they ever saw the kids. Uh, we did not bring the bodies and the families into contact. We took uh, pictures of them. Um, of, of their facial features, you have uh, uh, it's it's easier on the families when you do that. Uh, there is uh, a time and a place for up close and personal in the grieving process. But to accomplish this, uh, we felt it would be best uh, to do it this way. And uh, you can sort of uh, you can control the situation. Yeah, I bet you can. Uh, depending on your photographer, and I have very good photographers. Uh, but uh, so he says you can control the situation, you know, with your photography. I've got really good photographers. I, you know, and you can take it at face value. Don't they have to have somebody identify the bodies? Well, let's talk about the identification, which is also all over the map. This is uh, his opening of the statement. First of all, on behalf of my wife and my sons. And why would you, um, who gives a crap about your wife and your sons when we're, by the way, we're standing in the middle of the woods for some reason for this press conference, which I also don't understand. Why are we in the woods? And on behalf of my other family, uh, our people at the Office of Chief Medical Examiner, we wish to extend our deepest sympathy. And how much does this guy sound like John Goodman? It hurts just to listen. He sounds like John Goodman. Please. Uh, to the families and everyone else who has been so hurt by this event, um, our thoughts and our prayers are with you. Uh, the office chief medical examiner uh, got here. Uh, the chief medical examiner uh, got here. Did you hear that? He's like the office of the medical examiner. I mean, the chief medical examiner. <laughs> Look, he flubbed his line or something, and he's laughing about it. A couple hours after the building was secured, uh, we were here until approximately 12.30 last night. Uh, we thanked the uh, emergency services who built us a temporary uh, facility in the parking lot, and we uh, uh, took uh, identification photographs and did preliminary identification on uh, all victims. And had everybody transported back to Farmington by uh, about about one in the morning. Now, now, very important what he says next. Uh, our entire staff turned out, uh, started the postmortem examinations this morning. Uh, we completed the children by about 1.30. And I believe everybody except the uh, uh, assailant and uh, his mother will be finished uh, tonight. So... He had so everyone had been identified except for the assailant and the assailant's mother, which he was gonna maybe do tonight or. And I'll do those tomorrow. Morning. I'll do them tomorrow morning. Wouldn't that be like? Wouldn't you want that to be? I mean, how do we even know the guy was the guy who we said the guy was? 
Here's the medical examiner saying he hasn't even examined them yet. So it seems a little out of sequence here. Morning. Um, uh, Lieutenant Vance and staff have a list of the names uh, and the uh, dates of birth. Uh, anything else on there? <laughs> Did you, you see the, so the lieutenant has the names and the dates of birth and hey is anything else on there on that list anything else on that uh, list that I put together anything else on that uh, on that list uh, no 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 nothing else on that list no nope. uh, and that'll be distributed uh, hope you got enough copies hey hope you have enough copies the guy's insane John this guy's a total I mean, what is wrong with this guy um, everybody uh, death was caused by uh, uh, everyone that we've completed so far was caused by gunshot wounds. Um, and uh, obviously the manner of death on all these cases has been classified as homicide. He can't classify anything yet. It's not his job to classify that. I mean, he's, this, this to me... I'm telling you, this whole thing is fishy. Now, uh, I, by I, the way, the, the guy that uh, Rosen character, mm-hmm. who saw the six kids... Uh-huh. But for one thing, he never mentions his wife, which is weird because he brought the kids into the house supposedly. But he says that he saw the kids on his front on his front lawn, and he happened to have all the these way, little the toys to play. So many. He happened to have all these little toys to play with. You know, little uh, little animals and stuff the kids could play with at the ready. Yeah. He just happened to have that laying around the house. I guess. Mm-hmm. But he said that the the kids were he found them out in the front. And with a with a school bus driver, which mm-hmm. is mentioned in all the other reports, yep. where's he at nine thirty? Right, fifteen minutes. And he minutes. had heard the gunshots of like fifteen minutes earlier. But that school was supposed to be on lockdown at nine thirty, and the shooting began at nine forty five, according to the official report. So there's a there's another accounting error here that has to be fixed. And also said, according to the the uh, Fox. He saw the kids when he was coming back from having breakfast, but then if he was doing that, he couldn't have heard the shots from his house because he'd be someplace else having breakfast. But the other reports had him going to breakfast. He could have heard the shots if that was the case, and that was in a later report, which makes me think the story was changed. And then as he was driving out, and I've seen his house house from the top. He has a driveway that goes into the back of the place, and then it comes out to the front, and it's... And there's a huge lawn behind his house, but I don't know if the kids weren't there. It's a, it's a quarter of a mile from the school to the guy's house. It's a, it's a long walk, and it's wooded, the whole area. And, in fact, if you, people have to look at this school, uh, the f- Google shots of the school, because this is a, a, a large elementary school mm-hmm. with a parking lot that looks as if it would service the uh, – you know, one of the great football stadiums. I mean, this parking lot is out of control. It, it looks That's like true. high school parking <laughs> lots where kids actually drive to school mm-hmm. isn't as big as this parking lot, mm. which is really screwy if you ask me. I don't know what the point of all these parking sp- spaces are. And But it, the woods thing is explained by the fact the whole area is surrounded, but it's all treed in, everything. But it's a very strange situation, uh, the the, uh, the layout of the school, if, this guy's if, house. If, if you're going to uh, have a press conference with the chief medical officer, wh- why don't you just do it at his office? Why is he now in the woods? I don't know. It's I all don't, positioning. I don't understand John, that either. I don't all, get it. I mean, because it's all positioning. It's all mental mind control to put you into. Here, here's a, So here's another thing. Two things. So on Anderson Pooper, 
there were um, a couple of um, uh, relatives of the um, of the prince uh, the the principal. I think I don't have a sound. I don't have a clip from it. And it was like her nephew or something is like, yes, I'm wearing her school ID. And you look at the ID, and it's like it's not even a. Uh, a I mean, it's like someone made that up on uh, on a laser printer just before the show. And of course, you would expect the ID to be completely covered in blood. It's not. I mean, that is, so it's it's just it's obviously fake. It really is. I mean, there is so much fakery going on in this. And then my favorite is the the top shot, which I'm unsure if it was done from a helicopter or a jib. And you see them opening up the trunk of the car. And then pulling out what is either a, a shotgun or uh, it could be an AR-15 type weapon. It's hard to see. Uh, and you've seen this this uh, video, and then the cop is like uh, is like unloading shells from it. Have you seen this? I probably did. Okay, but let me tell you something. There's a lot of gi- there was a lot of shots I saw jib though, shots. It looked like jib shots. Now, but let, let, I don't get that. But my most important point is. That is not how you handle evidence. If you find a, uh, if there's a school shooting and there's a vehicle in the parking lot and it has a rifle in the back or any type of weapon, you as a sheriff or whatever that, that guy was dressed as, do not start unloading shells in the back of the evidence vehicle. That's not how you handle evidence. That's total, that's total posturing for the camera. Oh, it's bullshit. It's bullshit. All of this is bullshit. This whole thing is very, uh, it's very fishy. The problem is, I, you know, you can look into the all kinds of, yeah. I, this is so covered up by, I mean, whatever the real, whatever was really going on is so, including this guy, for example, this this character who, uh, this. Rosen guy, yeah, you, got a hard, like, you got a hard on for him, so now I'm going to have to look at it because I I don't ignore what you're saying. I mean, you're really it's irritated, just, by but it's this. everything is so buried because of if you try to do searches yeah. on anybody, oh, it's, it's so it's, it's impossible. It's yeah. impossible to get even if you do date searches, you can't get past. It's like a huge smoke screen, <laughs> and let me just play one more clip from the uh, from the from the the John Goodman actor guy. So. You know, so he, so he, someone asks him a question, and then he does the most uncharacteristic thing in the world. This one a bit different than things Did everybody hear the question? No. <laughs> Did everyone hear the question? Did you hear the question? It's important you hear this. Uh, uh was was uh, uh, given what I deal with all the time is this one over the top. Um, I've been at this for a third of a century. Uh. And it's my sensibilities may not be the average man, uh, but this probably is the worst I have seen, or uh, the worst uh, that I know of any of my colleagues having seen. It's probably the worst he's ever seen. Maybe not, John. Probably could be. But I think it's interesting. Yeah, he says probably. <laughs> probably. That's weird. Yeah, not really. I mean, probably. I mean, probably. Was, that doesn't was, make any sense. This may be something. What is this? Oh, yeah, I hope everyone heard the question so everyone can hear my answer. What yeah. is that all about? And he does a lot of like, you know, if I were in court, I wouldn't be able to answer that question. And but you know, he said, oh, if I've testified, I couldn't answer that question. The guy is an actor. 
I don't know why they put him in here, but you must watch this video. And he's got Tourette's and he's shaking. <laughs> does the weird shit with his head and, and sounds. And, you know, it's, it, it, even if he's the real deal, you just don't put this guy on television. And now um, he has turned to, mm, hold on a second. He has brought in the Connecticut, let's see, geneticist from the University of Connecticut to join him in the investigation of the killings. Quote, and this is from uh, uh, the Hartford uh, newspaper. Um, I'm exploring with the Department of Genetics what might be possible if anything is ever possible. <laughs> this is literally his quote from the, uh, the Hartford uh, Current. Um, if there's any identifiable disease associated with the behavior of the shooter. What is this? I mean, this is, this is insane. This whole thing is insane. It doesn't follow any normal pattern of this type of, of, of incident. And certainly not what we're actually seeing. I don't know. I, like I said, it's fishy. It's a mess. It's impossible to really uh, not being there or any, be able to talk to all these people. No. You, you can't put the same story together twice. There's no. accounting errors all over the place. Yeah. It's it's just astonishing. The whole thing is it's amazing. I mean, and there's no thesis that's interesting, and all the and, it's, and you go online and it's worse with all these yeah. douchebags trying to you know think everybody's everybody's <laughs> an actor and the whole thing is a scam. Libor. Libor. <laughs> That's my favorite. And the LIBOR guys. <laughs> I mean, it's just this impossible. I mean, no, no, this no, is no, one no, of the my most amazing is, things I've ever witnessed. My favorite is the uh, is the Sandy Hook map in the Batman movie, which also has an Aurora sign in it, and that somehow proves something. This is a big one. It's like that's suspicious. Coincidence? Ah, <sighs> maybe, maybe not. I don't know, but it doesn't say anything. It really doesn't. That's why it's just as good to say Sandusky. You can bring that as a Sandusky in there. Yeah, it's got the, the Sandy. You know, I, the the accounts that I like the most is like, you know, they kidnap these children um, and they threaten their parents and they've already sold the children off. I, I, these are the ones that I think are even more plausible than anything else. And that this whole thing is tied to one pedo bear network. Which would not surprise me at all. And this is where you get these idiots from because, you know, well, how would people do this? Well, you blackmail them. This is how people in government blackmail each other all the time with, with drugs, with money, or with perverted sex. It's how it happens all the time. And well, the thing that's interesting to me, and this has really got to, somebody's, somebody in Congress has got to do something about this. You could actually, uh, I mean, you could create a complete fake situation. We had a bunch of actors in it, and it's, I mean, I don't think this was, but I'm just saying you could easily. And then you give the parents, a, everybody, a, a national security letter. Yeah, and you need to shut the up. The national security letter, which people should look up and, and look into, is the most onerous thing. I mean, you think that the NDAA black bag operation snuck in there at the last minute that you brought up at the beginning of the show is a crappy deal, which it is. In other words, you can just you know you could disappear from Amsterdam tomorrow. And be held in some, you know, in absentia someplace, you know, in some military court for whatever reason. In the Hague. And the I never hear from you. International Mickey criminal court. What is, what is, you ever heard from Adam? I, he disappeared. Where is he? <laughs> and there's nothing anyone can do about it. There's almost the same thing on a broader scale with these national security letters that only one person's ever successfully fought. National security letter, essentially you get one. 
and it says you can't say you got one or you will be thrown in jail just without a trial. It's an amazing and it tells you it tells you what you can and cannot do. You can, you can be told not to talk about one thing or another or you will be thrown in jail or you'll instantly be, or you'll be suicided, whatever it is. But, but I mean these things are this is getting out of control and it's uh and interfering with our show cuz we can't figure this particular one out. We have all these crazy theories, but it's you know, no, we haven't got a clue. The only I th- don't just sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a FEMA skit At an abandoned elementary school in Newtown, Connecticut The Freemasons and the Globalists were absolutely sure They could take your guns and freedoms with their tales of blood and gore Tales of blood and gore Shitty actors started showing up, prepared to read their lines to CNN and the fake news crews far too unskilled to cry over kids that never die. The Sandy Hook school shooting hopes it aired for quite a while. With Gene Rosen, Robbie Parker too, David Wheeler and his wife, Lieutenant Vance, Wayne Carver and the state troopers at the Sandy Hook false flag. So this is the tale of Sandy Hook, the FEMA drill and lie. The fake news wants to convince you it's true, it's an uphill climb. CNN and other fake news too will do their very best to fool you with crisis actors and abandon common sense. No surveillance or death certificates, no proof that you can see. Like Michelle Obama is really a man, it's obvious as can be. So watch for more false flags, my friends, by the globalists and crooks. More bullshit fake-ass FEMA drills, just like Sandy Hook.